Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm awake, Darren, and I'm dressed. Um, <laughs> that is the best I, we can hope for, is it? Yeah, exactly. What more do you want from me? I, I, have, I have my mushroom coffee. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Without making any further reference to that. Oh. Yes, so this week, actually, we're discussing a <clears throat> classic. We're discussing Billy Walter's 1950 Sunset Boulevard. And this is a conversation that we've wanted to have for a while, because we had two guests who've been very, very keen to talk about this, and we've never really had a chance to do it. So, first of all, we have Charlene Lydon. How are you, Charlene? I'm good, thank you. Um, and second of all, we have Rena McGregor. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I've got two cats. It's all good. It's. Would you go so far as to say it's perfect? Oh... Gives you pause uh, for thought. Oh, wow. you're feline fine, eh? You ah, got there before me. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> uh, I like, it's gonna like to tap out of this. Uh, but yes, so uh, what we, 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 no <laughs> Oh, I like it. Um, but yes, sorry. So this is an exciting tale that we're going to talk about today. But first of all, um, so Charlene and, and Renuk, you guys, I think, had both separately mentioned to us that, like, of the movies on the list, this was one that you guys really, really, really wanted to talk about. So I'm kind of curious just about that. Do you guys remember, uh, so Charlene, to start with, the first time you saw Sunset Boulevard? Kind of like, is it one of your favorite films ever? Like, what were your impressions of it? And why do you want to talk about it? I generally tend to love Billy Wilder and I went through a phase like kind of around the time I was discovering that I really liked films and I started watching things that were old <laughs> which is like late in my teens I guess um and Some Like It Hot was like the only black and white film that I'd really like seen and thought was good and like I couldn't believe that a black and white film could make me laugh and that was kind of like a thing that opened me up to the world of cinema. Um, so Billy Wilder was one of my first like faves. Um, and Sunset Boulevard I probably watched, I think by pure coincidence, but uh, this obviously is related around the time I saw Mulholland Drive. Because yes. I always yeah. link the two in my head. Um, and anyway, so like obviously that's a huge thing. But uh, kind of Hollywood Gothic is something that I really love and this film is it's all of it like and it was I guess like something like Sunset Boulevard was utterly unique to me the idea that a film could look and feel like gothic but not be a horror and not, you know um so yeah so like it just it had an impact on me and kind of like aesthetically what I look for in cinema in general from now on <laughs> and uh and Reenoch I'm sure it's similar for you but like as a David Lynch fan like obviously this film is a huge influence on him and I guess I I responded to something in that actually it's almost word for word my experience as well as I was about to say it's David Lynch it's David Lynch it's David Lynch because I think that was my gateway to discovering Sunset Boulevard having separately really gotten into Billy Wilder and mostly through his comedies and then to double indemnity Sunset Boulevard was kind of the one I'd neglected for a long time and it was only through you know, around the same time I'd watch Mulholland Drive that it kind of started to, it it just made sense whenever I watched it. Like, oh, these are everything aligning that makes sense as to my taste, my, my obsession with old Hollywood in a very unique and slightly gothic tinged way. That sort of um, birth of the genre I'd like to call Hollyweird, where it's like, yeah. it's it's about an obsession with a place that's so based on 
beauty and surface, but is, you know, it, it, like American Gothic literature, it's there's so much darkness underneath the surface and so much death. Like, like one thing that always strikes me when you go to L.A., is how much death that one centralized place of boroughs and villages has so much scandal and crazy murders that like it just sort of encapsulated all of that kind of obsession for me um and that dark gothic sense of without being a horror movie but still being really eerie and that eeriness being so super cool um just in terms of that, that eeriness actually it's probably worth pointing out um because we, we might come back to it later but the actual inspiration of the story, or one of the inspirations of the story that's been cited, is the um, the name Norma Desmond, which is obviously one of the most iconic kind of names in film history, the central character here. Um, it's accredited to a combination of the names of director William Desmond Taylor and actress Mabel Norman, um, who were actually caught up in one of those Holly Weird scandals that you kind of mentioned of 1921, which again was the year that the Fatty Arbuck trial kind of happened as well, and a sense in which kind of Hollywood was really kind of coming apart at the seams. Taylor, um, and again, this is maybe a, it's not really a spoiler given that it's mentioned the first couple of minutes of the film, but there are perhaps some parallels between what happened to Taylor and the film itself, where Taylor was uh, found dead, shot three times. Um, no explanation ever found. The murder has been largely unsolved. And it's one of the great uh, kind of Hollywood mysteries because there's just so much scandal around it. The reports that when police arrived on the crime scene, they found executives from, I think it was 20th Century Fox or Paramount, burning papers in the fireplace. Um, the suspects of the, the murder involved um, a, the mother of a 19-year-old starlet who was convinced that uh, Taylor was having an affair with her, despite the fact that it subsequently came out that Taylor was gay. Possibly also his secretary, who he'd fired for embezzling huge sums of money from him. Um, also possibly his butler, Henry Peavy, whom he just bailed out of jail after his arrest for soliciting young boys in the park as well. So it's one of those great kind of Hollywood scandals where absolutely. When you say grace, you mean terrible. <laughs> yes, I mean terrible. So great. Do we all know that William Desmond Taylor so is from Carlo? What? Yes. Oh, oh there is a, a, a as as a Carlo person myself. I'm very proud of this. But uh, there 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 was. I don't know if it's still happening, but um, for a few years there was something called Taylor Fest in Carlo, which celebrated the life and work. William Desmond Taylor, because yeah. he was with Carlo. Yeah, because one of the things that came out of this whole like investigation into the death of this mysterious kind of director was the fact that he was not actually William Desmond Taylor at all. He was, in fact, William Cunningham Dean Tanner, a one-time traveling thespian, Yukon prospector, and antique stealer as well. Um, so quite Why hasn't this film been made? Uranium dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Bring Carlo to the world. Holly Weird via Carlo. I love it. Well, I guess it's, I mean, it's already been made uh, into this movie, right? That's true. Um, You're not going to do better than that. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's but it's like, let's focus more on the prospecting. The Yukon prospecting. Yeah. Con artist antique dealing. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, no, because again, and in, it's a movie that is very much kind of steeped in, in Hollywood. The Taylorverse. Um, in, <laughs> into the Taylorverse. But it's very much yeah. kind of a film that is steeped in terms of kind of Hollywood history as well. I'm kind of curious, actually, because um, this is one of the things where I came to it at a kind of a similar age to you guys. I would have seen it in my late teens, I think. And coming back to it, again, this is probably the first time I had watched it in decades, actually, which is quite depressing. But I remember coming back to it for this podcast. <laughs> 
Um, Darren, that's so hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like decades ago that you saw this. Yeah. This is, this, it, by the way, you said like this is a gothic, but it's not a horror. It totally is a horror. It is a horror. I, I was going to get to that. There's a, <laughs> like, I'm obsessed with, um, can you call this horror? With every film yeah, I yeah. ever see. Yeah. <laughs> and if you I mean, put a question mark around it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. If, if there's any way you can make that argument, it yeah. is. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's um and L L A L A is the character is the is the fifth oh, character. I was about to say <laughs> is, the city, is the city the character? That, yeah. That's what I would take. Um, yeah. The the um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for jumping ahead there, Andrew. Um, damn it, I had a whole set of notes prepared on that. Um, but no, because I mean, one of the things that's interesting about it is that like coming back to watching Sunset Boulevard as a kind of an adult, as somebody who has watched a lot more films as a result, particularly like I think Charlene and Marina both kind of alluded to this, a lot of older films, because this would have been one of the first inverted commas old Hollywood films that I watched. Coming back and realizing how tied it is to Hollywood history, how anchored it is in kind of the inside jokes, the references, the allusions, the name dropping, the kind of appearances of actors and stuff like that. So it is kind of interesting. I'm kind of curious about Charlene and Renock yourselves. Did you guys have that same experience, like coming back to it? Did you know immediately? Did you kind of get all the inside stuff or was it something that was kind of gradually revealed or, or does it matter at all to you? Definitely when I was a teenager and I first watched it, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I like, didn't know who Hedda Hopper was. Um, and actually I was just watching it as like some gothic thriller drama horror <laughs> um but certainly now i enjoy it and like um I, i've definitely seen it a number of times over the years but um re-watching it yesterday i was kind of struck by how much it is steeped in that like that history and like and you know it's made by people who know the people and they know norma desmond's and they you know they know the kind of mythical nature of uh people who've been like chewed up and spat out by Hollywood and I think you can really feel that in a way that I don't think comes across in a lot of like old Hollywood movies I don't think there's a lot of personal touches there you know I think it was quite unusual and I think that really came across for me and I love that makes me feel a bit more gossipy <laughs> yeah I think it's sort of the fascination with that time and that and that very scandal dense period of Hollywood history around the same time I'd really gotten into Charlie Chaplin and learned more about scandals that surrounded him, surrounded Fatty Arbuckle and these kind of, you know, Hollywood legends and, you know, incredibly dark murders. And it, it kind of, it just always was tinged with that for me going in that, you know, you knew sort of, you could, you could try and when, when they when they say at one point, you know, the, press agents working overtime can really do damage to the human soul. I was like, you can already imagine what that could have been or who that could have been. And the fact that we never really find out, you know, to, you know, she was really, you know, she was really hard to work with towards the end. What was the end for her? What was the out point of what, what four, kind of started her on that descent? <laughs> Very decidedly 430. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That was, right. that was the end. <laughs> Um, yeah. Andrew, what about yourself? Had you seen this before? Um, do you remember when you first saw it? I do remember when I first saw it. It was um, it was yesterday evening. <laughs> a, uh, or, in fact, I think more accurately, it was this morning. I think I started watching it about midnight, <laughs> and 
I think I, I, th- <laughs> I think I think at about one o'clock, o'clock in the morning, I might have woken up my uh, uh, my 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 girlfriend, and I was like, "Well, maybe I'll watch this in the morning." So 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 that's what I did. Um, I watched I watched the second half of it this morning, um, as it was intended to be watched. Like with you know with with, two with, parts, intermission. with an intermission yeah yeah exactly so um I I I liked it an awful lot it's funny talking about it as an older movie because it's a movie it's a horror movie about getting older um and about like fifty year old women um like the it's it's um. Like that that's the 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 the, the sort of like uh, monster of it. It's kind of kind of kind of kind of weird. I don't think it's going to make anybody feel any better about <laughs> about getting older, um, um, especially especially if you're a woman, um, I guess. Which 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 thankfully I'm not. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, um... So Andrew feels fine about it. <laughs> exactly. <All right. laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. I'm kidding. Um, uh, but yeah, it's 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 incredible, and it's also kind of like it's not just like old Hollywood. That's this. Um, um, this this like scandal ridden kind of. Um, you know, we don't have to be too nostalgic. <laughs> We talk There's no scandals the anymore. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we certainly won't but be talking like, about a recent one next week, for example. Yeah. Yeah, but even like coming up, stuff like um, Cliff Booth when he um, when like that 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 scandal that followed him around, like did he shoot his wife with a harpoon? Um, <laughs> I feel like you're kind boat. of yeah, yeah. Uh, Cliff Booth, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Certainly not any actual real celebrity or star that that might no, possibly be a living. We, we can't name actual people. Darren. <laughs> <laughs> he sued. Yeah, exactly. Um, this would be, or, that would be great for the podcast, actually, if we got sued. To be sued, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would really, it would yeah. really uh, boost. That's at least signal. a courtroom of people who'd be listening. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we need to thank like, you. So we need. To I got Judy. Judy, is it anything good? No, no. <laughs> it's, it's really, really boring. Some podcast. <laughs> some Did good have... guests, though. Some yeah. good guests. <laughs> I have to listen to all 200 episodes as entered as evidence. Um, <laughs> um, all right, then. So before we jump into the sports zone and talk about the movie in a bit more depth, three questions to get us all started. So, um, Charlene, do you think that Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes. 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 <laughs> no qualification, no hesitation whatsoever. <laughs> Absolutely does. Okay. I, um, actually, um, scandalize me. What, uh, what number is it at? 64. Um, it is one of the 100 percenters, though. Um, so it's been there since the list's inception back in 1996. It had at its lowest point dropped down to number 249, came perilously close to going out around oh at the turn of the millennium. I know. It climbed its way slowly back up. It's a champ. It managed to have, I'm not going to use the word comeback because we don't like that word. It returned <laughs> to the upper echelons of the 250 around about 2002, where it's kind of stayed perched around, say, 50, kind of dropping very slowly. It did kind of suffer a little bit in what we like to call the purge last year, where I think it dropped about five tens places. Um, but it, it's it's holding pretty steady. Um, so it's number 64 at the time. 
Um, I, I wonder what is... happened in 2002 that surged in popularity for Sunset Boulevard. I believe oh, there was a rape. Yeah. Mulholland Drive. I was going to say. Did uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> <Da-doy. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Did like... we all see this movie? <laughs> hmm. I'm, I'm lucky because, you know, I can, I can just enjoy David Lynch. Uh, David Lynch makes food better. David Lynch makes music better. But for some Happy people, better. David Lynch is a he's a he's a gateway director, and and <laughs> you, you start getting into other directors because of him, you know. So it, yeah. it's and before you know yeah. it, you're watching Billy Wilder movies and things yeah, have just gone yeah, completely exactly. off the rails. At, at one them. o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the, those filmmakers from you know the the first initial filmmakers that you would have watched when you're teenager like Tarantino and Scorsese they were sort of gateway directors to like oh there's there's they come from all of this line and sort of like the the lineage is very clear and just opens up even more worlds to you but definitely for for Lynch and yeah for Sunset Boulevard it's funny that we all kind of had that Lynchian gateway drug to get there um because I think it was me being that weird film kid that looked at um you know the 250 and kind of seeing all right I'm going to just like mark every single one of these off and getting to Sunset Boulevard pretty early on and being like okay it's time I need to watch this when you asked actually specifically around about 2002 what would have happened that would have propelled it up the list and I think you're entirely right that Mulholland Drive was probably a huge factor of that uh, being regarded as one of the films of the century. Also an issue that the film actually got a restoration and reissue on DVD around the same time. It was famously one of the last films to be shot on nitrate negative, um, actually, which again apparently gives richer blacks, but also means that the film stock is prone to, I believe, degenerate and decay over time. Um, so they actually had to physically go frame by frame and restore it uh, in order to release it in 2002. So that was kind That's of a big I paid deal. that extra five euros for on, on, on the YouTube um, <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I bought it to get an HD frame by frame. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, remastered. Uh, but yeah, no, no, it was. And it's kind of interesting because it's generally regarded as one of the first examples of that sort of happening to a classic film in fact actually there's whole articles written about the kind of restoration of sunset boulevard and how that might set a precedent for restoring older movies like what you know sort of like singing in the rain and stuff like that where the negative was destroyed in fires and stuff and again it's kind of interesting where you see paramount going through the discussion of can we actually release this in cinemas or are we just going to screen it at the museum of modern art and stuff like that is that something people are interested in seeing are they going to be interested in seeing restored kind of negatives of old movies and stuff like that so it's kind of interesting that sunset boulevard was one because that's something presents. I would say is that like um, it growing up in Carlo, there was not that many old movies available to me. But Sunset Boulevard was something I like rented on video in yeah. the video shop. Like it's really it was really readily available. So I guess probably because they've done a massive release of it. There was no ordering things on the Internet or there was no uh, Amazon back then. So it was like whatever you have in your local town that's there to film or you catch it on telly one night. Like they're the only ways to watch films. Uh, back then. Right. Charlene, what was your local video shop called in Carlo? Extra Vision. Uh, we, oh. we had Extra Vision and Chartbuster. Oh, do you know what? Not to go too far down memory lane, but uh, there was a video shop called JC Videos. And it had the most random shite. And I mean, like, I would just go in there and just spend hours looking at the shelves. But, like, but they had all the John Waters films and stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
all really? kinds of mad jokes. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Um, they had a nudie Good. section. <laughs> it was a great shop. And then they, one day they just completely unceremoniously closed, and I couldn't get in touch with anyone to be like, "Can I just buy all your John Waters videos, please?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Show me nudes. Yeah. <laughs> The nudie videos, I, I, there was one called Cassidy's in Dundalk and it was, they had like Planish, which was the kind of the bigger video store and there was Extravision, which was shite. But then there was Cassidy's and Cassidy's had like Taxi Driver and Sunset Boulevard and the apartment and something like that. It just had every single classic, like a whole, whole side of the shop was just classics and everything up till the 70s and 80s. Um, and then it had, you did have John Waters, it did have um, stuff that they went on holiday to get and pirated and just told us not to tell anyone. Um, it was, it, yeah, it was sort of, like kind of owe a lot to that video shop because you had the access to it. Otherwise, it just would have been, if it had been on telly that week and you happened to see it and record it, that otherwise you're never going to get the chance to see it. I remember there being a thing, and I, I don't think my mother is an engineer or a technology person, but she didn't like me renting videos from JC's because they were dirty and they would make your video player break. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's but a the thing, nudie ones. Not just the nudie ones. Dirty, dirty videos. <laughs> it's like they're covered in muck or Real something. Steep. I don't know. That's not really how videos work, man. But, uh, but I have to sneak out videos like, rent them. <laughs> There's a Cronenberg movie for you. <laughs> I think I've seen that one, actually. We... Oh, sorry. Darren and I, we had Extra Vision and we had, was it Video City? It used to be a, did it used to be a Chartbusters? It used to be a Chartbusters around the corner in the little sort of building with the brown stones. Um, I got punched in the face like about 50 times once outside that place. Um, I love that this is Andrew's Um, film memory. I love that like (laughs) Charlene and Rena are like, it was great. We actually watched the videos. We got to rent the videos and it informed our film history. And Andrew's like, yeah, I got beat up outside a video store once. <laughs> hey, hey, wait. I did not say I got beat up. Um, so <laughs> did you punch the other guy 51 times in the face? No, no. But I, I just kind of I stood there and called him names. And then eventually he got tired and he left. I was okay. fine. No, like if somebody, if somebody punches in the face, sometimes it's terrible. Um, and then sometimes, like when 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 the per- per- person like you know, if they haven't had their Weetabix, or if all they've been eating all day is Monster Munch, then they they they, they can't really. Anyway, sorry, let's talk about Monster Sunset Punch. Boulevard. Yeah. Oh. Monster Punch. Wait. <laughs> I will say I'm actually, one of, my, one of my great regrets of kind of like my teenage years is that I didn't get a job in Extra Vision in Sligo. That's not I, game game I did. That would have been so perfect. <laughs> Yeah. I worked in extra vision all through college. <laughs> <laughs> I probably never would have left though is the problem. That's um, the thing. I think they knew I was like that she's in here all the time. She'd be insufferable if we put her behind the counter. Like just, let's just ignore that. <laughs> Darren, why would that have been a problem? Well, because extra vision no longer really exists. Um <laughs> right. yeah, no, you would be working in an you'd be working in an internet cafe. Actually, the, the, or a tanning um, salon. Um, yeah, I think now it's a diner. Um, is it actually? So you, you, yeah, I think so. I think the one by the gate is now it's, now it's, now it's is now a diner. 
yeah. the the Century City is one of those, or whatever it's called. It's one of those places where you buy things for like covers for your phone and stuff. Yeah. So it was it was a tanning place, um, and it was a uh, an internet cafe, and the 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 amount of movies got slowly smaller but better. Like they, you'd go <laughs> in there and they'd have really good movies. Yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I do, I do love that our discussion about of Sunset Boulevard, which is about like the death of old Hollywood, that's kind of become the death of the old Irish video store as a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels feels like there's a nice thematic and a link there. But Rena, what about yourself? Do you think that Sunset Boulevard is one of the 250 best movies ever made? Undeniably, yes. Absolutely. Just yes, yes, yes. All right, All right. Um, and Andrew. <laughs> Do I think, sorry, I'm eating toast. Um, do I think Sunset Boulevard... I didn't realize you had mushroom left. Oh! Nice. Um, I'm, um, it's a very cheesy pun. Um, is there cheese on I, the toast? I, I toast you. There is cheese on the toast. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got that from context. Yeah. Uh, your puns are hot sauce. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. It's like the opposite of weak sauce. Do I believe it, it belongs under 250 uh, best movies ever made? Yes, I do. Um, I think I, um, it's, a, um, it's a triumph. I had heard about this movie, obviously, but I'd never seen it. And sometimes when there's these sorts of classics that you hear about, well, generally speaking, it's because they're really good, um, um, and then and then you end up seeing them and confirming that. Um, so yeah, the, the, it 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 belongs there. It's always been there, um, and not even not even the purge took it away. Um, people need to stop watching the purge. It's ruining our two fifty. Um, yeah. And I, I agree with that. I think it's a usually important film. It was one of the first 25 films that the um, Library of Congress uh, marked as important back in 1989 in terms of denoting kind of American cinema and American contributions to cinema. And again, obviously featured on numerous lists as well. But one of the great films of Hollywood about Hollywood, I think kind of like the range of discussion that we had so far kind of demonstrates so many of how them. much it resonates. Yeah, how much it kind of resonates and how much it informs and how much it shapes. So second question, Charlene. Would it be on your own personal 250? Assuming you had 250 favorite movies ever. Yeah. Compl- uh, yeah. These are such short answers. They really are. Yes. Well, because <laughs> well, c- c- you're going to... Thank you. I, I do try to keep them short. <laughs> <laughs> Bullet point. Um, but, uh, ch- because Charlene and kind of Renock, you both kind of mentioned this as a film you wanted to discuss on here. Would it be in like your top 10? Yeah, yeah, it's always it. It definitely is something that circles my head when people ask me what my favorite movie is. There's, it definitely sort of between that the apartment and Dublin Demi. There are three Billy Wilder movies I would have even in my top ten for sure. Wow! So like I don't 30... know if it's in my top ten, uh-huh. but like it wouldn't surprise me if someone asked me my top ten and that would pop into my head we'll as far as it is, just at number yeah. 10 yeah. but it would be it'd be very high up there and I wouldn't argue with it at all uh, <laughs> and how do we feel about it as a Billy Wilder movie is it your favourite Billy Wilder movie is it possible to have a favourite Billy Wilder movie does it depend it on your mood it just swings in such different wild directions it's so hard like <laughs> um, I would say this this or something like it hot are my 
two favorites, but they're so like vastly, vastly different. Um, yeah, I, I find it difficult to pick a favorite Billy Wilder because, as you said, like the apartment, amazing, Dublin Down Deep, amazing. They're just like, yeah, difficult. But um, I, it's probably that and some like it hot would creep into my like my heart the most. <laughs> yeah, I think like when it comes to it, it, it fluctuates wildly depending on mood. So it's like, of course, I'm going to need a, you know, the apartment is that kind of affirmative, lovely hug. Um, you know, they're it they're there for different needs, I guess. I like but I think double indemnity just like always etches out a little bit more for me just because it's it's just so it's just so brilliant and sexy and weird and but yeah, then when you watch each movie you're like, oh maybe this one's my favourite and then you watch Double Indemnity and then you watch the apartment and you're like, No no no, this one's this one's my favourite one and but some like it hot is always like it's always there for me and I absolutely love it. But it still doesn't quite get close to these three for me, yeah. I think. Uh, but still, three Billy Waller films in your top ten is a pretty impressive kind of hit rate That's as true. far as these things go. Um, <laughs> and Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be in your own personal two fifty? Um, I don't. Uh, I. I mean, my but one one thing that is kind of giving me reservations is that it sometimes gets to me Hollywood's obsession with itself. Um, and I'm not them. And uh, I, and I, I guess like their obsessions aren't my obsessions, but there, 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 there are things about this movie that are universal as well. And it's interesting to look at, um, I guess, and, 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 and art form reflecting on itself. Um, because it feels more intimate, I guess, sometimes, than than them talking about, you know, uh, fighter pilot, a pretty good fighter pilot. <laughs> Until one day he has a crisis of confidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he's a baseball player, pretty, pretty good, good baseball. baseball player. <laughs> Until one he's day got this the mom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and like. In terms of how I'd rate it among Billy Wilder, um, there's there, there's this one movie about an, a guy who works in insurance. Pretty good <laughs> insurance guy. <laughs> but but it's too close, to, too close to home. So, I, was about to say, I, love that, I love that your response was like, I feel I don't, can't really connect with some sexual apart because it's got this kind of Hollywood obsession with Hollywood. Now, if only Hollywood make more movies about people who sell insurance. Now, that I can relate to. I don't sell insurance, okay? Fair point. And I don't play one on television. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I like this. I like this an awful lot. Um, and in, in the Billy Wilder kind of, um, in that four that we've spoken about, I'd probably put these, put this and the apartment on. I mean, they're all so weird in in their own kind of way, uh, which I love. But this is this is especially weird, and I love how I love how kind of transgressive the apartment is. Um, um, um you know how kind of um, cuttingly um, uh, uh, satirical. It is, and this, this, this is maybe like I, I really do like it a lot. I'm just kind of like, 
I suppose after all has been said and done, I'm uh, I'm kind of like, so what? You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, uh, but it, but it, but it's great. Like, it, yeah. So so it it might be in my top two fifty, but it, it it would it might um it might not. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah and 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 yeah it's it's yeah. I kind of almost agree with Andrew there, and that I really, really like it. I think it's fantastic. I think it's worth watching. I think it's it's really well put together. It's a fascinating, important film in terms of film history. Um, very funny, very dark, very twisted. I think again that discussion about whether or not it's horror is going to be a fun one. Um, I you know not to jump too far ahead. I'm absolutely going to recommend it in the next question. But I do think that in terms of Wilder films, it doesn't quite get there for me. I think my one is probably The Apartment and probably Double Indemnity actually as well. And it doesn't kind of uh, because you know I can. I can't really relate to, you know, a writer whose car breaks down and he ends up being <laughs> yeah. a creepy starlet and her butler. It's not really my life. On the other hand... So lonely. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's but yeah, no, I, I kind of, I really, really, really do like it, but I don't, I'm not sure it would make my own personal 250. And then finally, so if listeners have not yet watched uh, Sunset Boulevard, keep in mind that it is available at the moment to stream on Sky. So if you have Sky in the UK or Ireland, you can watch it there. It's available on various streaming services, including HBO Max. Yeah, first time we get to mention HBO Max on the podcast, because we're hip and cool and with it in the States, but it's also available to buy and purchase H- via HBO places. Max the Herling. <laughs> Um, is, is is that is that its full name? Um, I'm not entirely sure. No, um, <laughs> working as the butler now inside Zack sort of <laughs> Snyder's mansion, apparently. Um, Sorry, H- HBO Max von Herling. Yeah. Von Herling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you can never leave Zack Snyder. Um, but yes. Um, so yes. You, you just have James your... Gandolfini as your <laughs> butler. He's like, I'm HBO Max. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, um, go ahead. But yeah, so it is available to stream in those places, in the usual places. So, Charlene, would you recommend people pause the podcast, stay at home where it's safe, and stream Sunset Boulevard to a local device? Yes. I mean, I've yet to meet a person who doesn't like this film, so like, it'll give you something. Also, I think there's a lot to talk about with this film, and, you know, I, I think there's you, you would get a lot more from having seen it than not <laughs> that's the most obvious answer in the world <laughs> yeah. i feel like i feel like if you just jump into the spores on the podcast you're going to need a bit of context for a lot of things that we discuss uh, yeah yeah uh, like it's... the early funeral without getting too spoilery i feel like if you describe the early funeral without having seen the movie it make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i do think a lot of this film has seeped into pop culture though so that's one thing that like i feel like you know those films that you're like I feel like I've already seen it because I kind of know yeah, the gist yeah, of it. Yeah. Uh, but that never does justice to a film. So yeah, yeah go off and watch it. Yeah, This is, again is something like we discussed kind of White Heat a couple of weeks ago with Carl and very much like the most famous sequence in White Heat is the closing sequence mm-hmm. that I'm top of the world model. Perhaps the most famous sequence in this film is the closing sequence as well, which doesn't necessarily do it justice either, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, fi- the final shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Renek, would you recommend people pause the podcast and watch the movie? 100% because like you said it's kind of you know having context to talking about even stuff like genre of horror and all of the various different weird moments and off one-off lines that they mention it's just 100% better if you know what the fuck we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew what about yourself um yeah yeah don't 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 um um, 
don't continue listening if you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Do continue listening, but first watch Sunset Boulevard. And, um, and yes, I would recommend it. Um, it's okay, it's, uh, Andrew. We it's... already have their listen. It already counts for the stats. <laughs> <laughs> I want them to listen to the end um, until they get nice and sleepy. Um, <laughs> Stick it on at midnight. Um, uh, about 1, <laughs> yeah. 1, 1, 1 p.m. 1 a.m. Sort of look at your partner, say, "I'm going to listen to the rest of the podcast tomorrow," and fall asleep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I'd I'd recommend they see it. The the um the um is is it is it is it your chance to 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 say whether you'd recommend us, Darren? I think you might have tipped. I your may hat. have already tipped my hand on that one. So with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so, no. Darren, um, is Joe Gillis a role model? Um, I thought you were going to say, is he a robot? And you're like, that's a fresh <laughs> that's, that's a twist right there. <laughs> <laughs> the big twist in the spoiler zone is that Sunset Boulevard isn't a horror. It's a sci-fi movie. It's <laughs> 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 camera... like loads of synth playing. Yeah. The, the camera pans over to Rod Sterling, who's sitting by the edge of the pool, saying, Consider Joe Gillis. An ordinary man. A writer. Um, but yes, yeah, so Rena, yeah. what is Sunset Boulevard about for you? Um, it's, it's about the cruelty of, of being a woman in Hollywood and growing up and becoming irrelevant that you're... That, in, in for me even watching it last night the idea of it's a ghost story it's it's she's she's no longer there because she's just this ghostly spectral figure walking around a house that no longer really fully exists in the sense that she believes she exists and she's sort of got this unfinished business that that she needs to haunt a member of the new Hollywood in order to kind of break through to the other side. It's kind of, it's really grim. It's really satirical. And it just, it's, it's just a really sharp observation of how cruel Hollywood is and how we associate that part of Hollywood with being about glamour and all these really beautiful women. And it's sort of without actually realizing the the damage that it actually really fully does as well yeah it's a very it's a very 2017 um i mean the the the, the um, that's a very in, specific in, year to cite <laughs> yeah but it, the the um it's it's crazy because the the um the old kind of ghost sort of um ancient monster in this movie is a young woman um she's 50 yeah. like 
played by Swanson yeah. at the age of 52, actually. And again, yeah. kind of interesting in terms of kind of inspirations. Apparently, um, Norma Desmond was inspired by Norma Talmadge, uh, was the actor who inspired her, who was one of the most popular directors of the 1920s. Um, she was regularly top popularity polls, out distancing rivals like Gloria Swanson, Paula Negri, and Mary Pick- Pickford as well. She left to found her own studio. Um, the New York Times identified her in 1924 as the highest salaried screen actress in Hollywood history. And yet she disappeared almost entirely and almost completely. Um, she popped up in Singing in the Rain. She was parodied as Lena Lamont, who is the silent screen diva whose Brooklyn accent undermines her talking debut in a French historical drama, um, which apparently spoofed Talmadge's second sound feature, which was Dubarry Women of Passion, um, and apparently was seen as being a rather mean-spirited joke at her expense there. But she's very much a kind of an influence on Norma Desmond here, and they borrow, like, again, Wilder borrows quite a bit from her. So, you know... There's uh, Swanson, who was one of Talmadge's rivals, um, draws on Talmadge's reclusiveness because she left films in 1930, living in a Beverly Hills mansion on her considerable fortune that she'd earned her prime. Her well-known affair with a younger man, uh, that was the actor Gilbert Rowland, her co-star in several 1920s hits, and her reputation for erratic behavior. And and Talmadge was known from suffering from severe arthritis and became addicted to painkillers. And in 1946, kind of married her doctor as well. There's something very kind of pointed in that. It's very much kind of drawn from uh, screen history as well. And again, Swanson herself was obviously a huge influence uh, on the screen, role as well. Screen, screen history and screen future. Like he's he is a a um, Joe Gillis is 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 a robot that's transported into the future as 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 well. Like he 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 does get shot in the back and doesn't bleed. Um, <laughs> I love the little bit where he tries to kind of walk it off after the first shot. You can see he's just like no, walking off. Yeah, yeah. No, Computing. Um. I feel like we're going to get around to, to Andrew, like you proving that actually Joe is a robot. <laughs> it's a theory we put out there, but we'll we'll definitely we'll definitely justify it. <laughs> But in, in terms of this as well, like, again, very clearly drawn from Gloria Swanson herself and her life and career as well. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously things like the use of Cecil B. Uh, DeMille, um, who was obviously mm. a huge influence on Swanson's career as well. She call, He calls her Sweet Fellow, um, which she kind of had, which was his, his nickname for Swanson throughout. Swanson apparently was not the first choice for the role. Apparently uh, Wilder had wanted a number of kind of, and again, the development of Sunset Boulevard is fascinating. Because apparently uh, the original pitch was going to be a comedy about a silent film actress who gets one big break and ends up back on top of Hollywood. And apparently the original cast that Wilder wanted was Mae West um, to play the kind of the, the Norma Desmond character, but then Marlon Brando um, to play the kind of the role of the younger writer who kind of gets sucked in as well. Um, it was then they, they wanted a number of other actors as well. But yes, he apparently he wanted, he talked to uh, Paula Negri, um, the silent film mm-hmm. actor he originally wanted, but determined that her Polish accent was actually too strong. For her to play the role, yeah. Um, he then went to it's Mary. Strange. Pick- it's strange that Norma Desmond has such a theatrical, um, <laughs> like like voice. Is is it implying that like she ha- she that she she's she's too kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, hammy. Yeah, and because um, it, it's not like she has this 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 sort of like Brooklyn accent or or. Or that she sounds or like Polish she's accenter, yeah, 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 yeah. Like she's very kind of you know mid Atlantic or whatever you call it, transatlantic. Um, yeah, transatlantic. Yeah, I guess. 
but it's more like a kind of a vampire. She's literally she's vamping very much. So it's very much yeah. like uh, kind of like Othello on stage type performance as well. And particularly the way that she's shot that wonderful sequence where they're watching. And again, there's a story about the film that they're watching when she does it. But when she stands up kind of backlit by the projector light, her hand kind of clasping in the air, talking about how they, they don't make stars anymore. I built Paramount Pictures. <laughs> it's very much like a sort of a vampire slash monster movie slash sort of like... It's very drag. It's pure yeah. drag theatrics. <laughs> but there's something in like the fact that we have no reason to believe that she couldn't have created another career for herself, either on stage or in Hollywood. Mm had she not refused to be part of this sound madness, you know, because she, she is very theatrical, but like, you know, she kind of, you, we don't know, but like she could maybe have ostracized herself and kind of just like stubbornly refused to be part of it. And then obviously <laughs> like became difficult later in her career or whatever. Um, so like there is that thing, like there's no reason that woman couldn't, act with her voice her voice is fine it's not like she has a thick polish accent you know uh, her voice is absolutely fine she could be completely accepted in hollywood although like one of the things that came clear to me watching it yesterday was you know that like now we have female film stars in their 50s who are still holding leading parts but definitely not back in 1950 the sort of idea that you became a certain age and you know unless you were Thelma Ritter you were not getting any roles for women over the age of 45. Just the idea that that sort of made you a ghost that you were sort of forever trapped within the mind of your 20-something self was just trapped in your body that was getting older is just really quite quite grim. And again just in terms of kind of Swanson in terms of her career as well she was known by the time she's 24 she was known as the queen of the screen and was receiving 10,000 fan letters a week. Um, cinema bosses, including the operators of Paramount Pictures, called her the mortgage lifter. All they had to do was put her name on billing outside a cinema and the money would just roll in. And that she was the queen of Hollywood as well. What's interesting about Swanson, actually, it's kind of funny that Charlene mentions this, is that Swanson basically opted out of Hollywood. It isn't that she was kind of brushed aside or ignored. Mm -hmm. She decided that she just didn't want to be a part of it. And what she did was she moved into radio, ironically enough, because you mentioned that her voice, her voice is pretty good. So she was doing a lot of uh, radio and television work as well um, around the time that she was recruited to work on this film. So apparently she balked at the idea of having the screen test for it. Um, And it was uh, George Kakur, the the director who worked on Saigon with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz as well, who famously convinced her to do it, saying that, look, if they ask you to do 10 screen tests, you're going to do them because you need this role. And again, it's kind of interesting. What time was the screen test scheduled for? <laughs> um, am I am I the George Kukur to your Gloria Swanson? Andrew, that... <laughs> um, no, like 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 was it before ten <laughs> in, in in the morning? Who schedules a meeting for nine? <laughs> like, um... I, I feel like listeners need to know that the meeting began at ten. <laughs> Just <to> be <laughs> put Andrew's complaints in context. But yeah, no, no, it is. It's kind of, it is interesting in in that sense because again. As much as the character, as much as Desmond jokes that she built Paramount, you have this real sense in which Swanson did build Paramount. Mm-hmm. She built a lot of the Hollywood studio system. A lot of it was built on her back. And I think it's kind of interesting to tie back into what Renock kind of said there about the idea of ghosts and ghosts haunting. And one of the more interesting arguments that I've kind of read about Sunset Boulevard is that despite the fact that we tend to focus on Norma Desmond, and I think there's a lot to talk about there, <clears throat> there's also something the film is saying about then contemporary Hollywood, the kind of Hollywood of the 50s, mm-hmm. which again, Wilder had arrived in 
And again, he will talk about the parallels between him and the character of, of Gillis as a writer as well, because he'd spent time in Vienna working as a taxi dancer and as an escort for older mm-hmm. women as well. And maybe some of that filtered through into the character. But like in sorry, the 19th... 19- sorry, what? Oh, this is one of the things where I need to slow down. Yes, he, he worked Wilder? in Vienna as... Wilder, Billy Wilder, yes. He worked as a worked taxi as... dancer and an escort for older women, yes. Now, again, I don't know if escort was a euphemism or whether it was literally just, like, a very proper escort, but yes, apparently he did. I don't, like, I think, I don't think escort is a euphemism. (laughs) I think, like, friend is a euphemism for an escort. Um... Uh, friend of um, he, older women. Yeah, yeah, he was, yes, he works as a taxi a dancer and a friend um, of older women, <laughs> um, companion perhaps. But no, but more more to the point in terms of kind of fifties uh, Hollywood, because again, it's notable that um, the film was obviously released in that context. But in in Hollywood in the fifties, you had a number of kind of scandals brewing. You had things like the arrival of television, which was challenging kind of the dominance of movies. Mm-hmm. You had the Hollywood blacklist, uh, which <clears> kind of taking root in the late forties and into the fifties. Of which sort of Wilder himself was an outspoken opponent uh, as well. And you have this kind of sense of kind of like declining profits as well. The Paramount decision, which we talked about, I think, on White Heat with Carl as well, which kind of broke up the idea of kind of cinema chains being owned by these big international conglomerates. And it's notable that a lot of the big pushback that came for Sunset Boulevard came from the big studio heads at the time. Famously at the premiere, Louis B. Mayer said that, uh, and again, this is apparently one of the rare cases where Wilder like went on the record and told him to go screw himself, except using a much less polite euphemism for screwing himself. <laughs> but Mayer said he should be deported for biting the hand that he fed, and he had no respect, this foreigner, for the industry that had made him famous in the first place. <laughs> Zanuck, uh, who worked at 20th Century Fox, who actually gets name-checked uh, in mm-hmm. the film itself, apparently wrote an internal memo saying, and again, I kind of love how pithy and whiny and kind of bitchy it is. It's because <laughs> Zanuck Brenner wrote this internal memo to be passed around 20th Century Fox, where he said, Sunset Boulevard was a masterpiece until it was released throughout the country and failed to do business. It is not so big a masterpiece today, uh, which is one of the most wonderfully kind of petty kind of sideswipes to make in a movie like that as well. Uh, but there's you a sense it's of- the cutest thing. It's very Trumpian, isn't it? It's just like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is yeah, not. Yeah. It's not good. This is your ratings are bad. Yeah. Not so big. Not so great. Not so great. That's so great. Um, not, not so great. So great. Um, I remember when they used to give Best Picture Oscars to movies like Gone with the Wind. What happened? Um, I mean, but it isn't even an American film. Sorry, I know. Sunset Boulevard isn't even an American film. Is it good? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Uh, but yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it's it's kind of interesting though how you could read that again. This is the thing where. Within Sunset Boulevard, you could argue that the really depressing thing about Norma Desmond, or the really depressing thing that kind of stems from Norma Desmond, is the fact in which the rest of the Hollywood is so dependent on her. Where, like, you have, throughout the film, you have this idea of kind of, like, the studio system being very precarious. All the pe- all the characters that you meet in the film working in Hollywood are financially insecure. So even, like, think of Sheldrake, for example. He's talking about how he bought, bought a ranch, but he's had to mortgage that ranch, you know? You have people like, for example, Archie, who has to go on remote, stu- remote shoots to Arizona and hope that he can maybe get married in Arizona because it's a bit cheaper out there. You have Betty, who's had plastic surgery to make herself more presentable on screen, despite being a third-generation actor, and hasn't been able to break into the industry. You have Gillis himself, who, you know, has talked about how hard it She's is for him to make it. now. Like you can, uh, like she's twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> Just give up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, 
but like you you have this kind of sense in which like and and despite in contrast of that like for all that norma desmond is weird and kind of like framed as being creepy and framed as being somebody who makes all these people really uncomfortable with her presence she is incredibly financially secure she's so rich that she never has to present paper money like again like i think that gillis jokes that the only money he ever actually sees is the 70 cents he got for helping her play bridge but she's got money and oil she's got this big mansion she can hire musicians uh, to play for her private party and things like she's that got a, yeah. she, she's got she's got a kick ass children <laughs> she's got <laughs> a kick ass monkey child yeah, she's got a kick <laughs> a kick ass sort of old car that <laughs> had a kick ass monkey child well, well she kind of Still replaced has. Uh, yeah, I kind of love that she replaced the kick-ass monkey child with a kick-ass screenwriter child. That's as well. what I love. It's like she she lost one monkey and gained another, and then yeah. he has the dream of the dancing for pennies. It's like, oh, that's your comment on Hollywood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it is. And again, I kind of find that interesting. That like for all that we talk about Norma Desmond as kind of the ghost of Hollywood past and the way in which Hollywood does like chew out, chew out, and sort of spit out kind of these old actors. You you get a sense in Sunset Boulevard that despite that. The real issue, or not the real issue, but at least part of it is the resentment that modern Hollywood feels towards those actors or towards those performers, those people who are financially secure, those people who built the industry, those people who don't have to worry about finances, that there's a sense of almost pettiness there, a sense of frustration where it's like, we're suffering, we're struggling. Because again, Louis B. Mayer, who like one of the most famous producers in Hollywood history, who said that about Wilder, who got so upset at this film. He was fired. He was forced to resign within a year of its release because Paramount was not making any money whatsoever at the time. Which is kind of striking. Um, but anyway, sorry, um, in terms of, of Norma Desmond as well, is there anything else you kind of want to talk about with her? Because there's a lot there in terms of her presentation and actually about the horror movie aspect of the film as well. Because again, it's introduced with a literal monkey funeral. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's so her her introduction through the kind of like I don't know bamboo oh, so looking good. blinds with the like with the glasses and yeah. like it's 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 so I actually had forgotten that that's how you first see her. It's so striking, like it is. It, she's actually a monster, <laughs> and, and, and almost dispossessed voice like the Invisible Man as well. Because again, obviously done in uh, you know in dubbing or whatever, but you can see her lips aren't moving. So behind <laughs> blind, behind these glasses, like <laughs> it's just so brilliant i loved i loved her introduction i can't believe that that image hadn't stayed with me it's it's odd that it hadn't because it will now (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of images like i mean the little kind of monkey funeral parlor as well which got this weird grotesque kind of gothic sunlit kind of gothic stripping (laughs) scene Um, she's so well written as well in the like things like um her her following of astrology like um, you know, Joe is Joe is a Sagittarian. Do we <laughs> so want to talk about? Him. Yeah, do we want to talk about astrology and any listeners that we have who uh, <laughs> who who like astrology can like skip forward maybe like thirty sixty seconds. <laughs> Go for it, Andrew. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the, I think it's um, in the stars, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> No, I've used astrology before. I remember I, I, I worked with 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 um, a person who believed in astrology, and I picked it up one day that she read the the um, the uh, horoscopes, and then there was a situation where she and another person I was working with weren't getting on, and I resolved it one day through astrology, and explained that like um, he was actually he while. While he was a Pisces, he was uh, on the cusp of 
of an Aries and that's um like I spoke about like their their two um star signs and they're two they're actually too similar and that's why they don't get along like um and they they got along fine after that because they realized oh yeah yeah we're we're i'm uh, i'm debunking the stars i'm this i'm this uh, i'm this star sign and you're that star sign and um and now we understand each other um so yeah it's um don't uh don't uh, don't discount. Don't discount well, it worked out really fine for Joe. So yeah, anyway, uh, I, <laughs> Joe and Norma I'm worked out Norma grand. Well. Yeah. Uh, although again, I do like that. Even in this again, sly wordplay alert here. But the fact that even in Hollywood, even the stars navigate by the stars, which I kind of like as well, which I thought mm-hmm. was very clever. Well, it, it's it, it's it's very it's quite it's sort of accurate. Like the the. Um... Uh, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Ronald Reagan, um, uh, Ronald Reagan star strongly, of the Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, uh, believes strongly in astrology. I th- I think especially um especially his wife Nancy. Um, there's also Peter Sellers, was um was I believe guided by an astrologer, um uh throughout his life. Um, there's so many there's so many examples of it. Like you know, because you leave you leave um, the the East End, or you you leave Ohio, um, and you 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 know you forsake all of the um, gods that you kind of leave behind, and and you arrive in Hollywood, and you know discover Scientology mm-hmm. or astrology or or whatever kind of like um, belief but system that explains. Is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But something a- appropriately kind of Californian. Yeah, um, yeah. To, to, or where to, you reach the to... end of the American dream, Andrew, to hit that 250. <laughs> um, yes. But it, it is... Push westwards, manifest destiny. Yeah. It, it's, it's like that kind of, like when I was talking about the genre of Holly weird, this kind of, you know, like the fact that it has a very specific tone because it's, you know, you kind of start with someone in a world that they can sort of navigate and we do know what the rules of this world are. He's a writer that can't get a gig and he needs money and that's kind of the way he needs to live. And then suddenly he takes a turn off the road and it's monkey funerals and it's astrology and it's Valentino danced on this floor. And it's just so magically done in a way that it's it's like Alice in Wonderland. It's like you just completely go into this other realm and it's a whole portal of which it Hollywood has kind of been built on is is we believe in the in the the universe of these stars, like lit you know, film stars and their belief and, and our understanding that they are our gods. And within that kind of framework anything kind of goes and any belief system kind of goes. So it's it's so great when you see those worlds kind of contrast together and how how strong that contrast must have felt in the 50s because I suppose when you're looking back at it you know you can kind of confuse the 20s aesthetic and gothic aesthetic of her house as being quite similar to the you know the very modern 50s New Year's Eve party and but how different that must have felt to someone watching it in 1950 of feeling like he's gone into this complete Alice in Wonderland different realm and then he goes back into the 50s and he steps out of 
this world with the coat and tails it, the contrasters must have felt a lot stronger back then yeah that's that's something that like I, I like the sort of contrast between new hollywood and old hollywood in 1950 so like as a viewer <laughs> in 2020 you're just like jesus right like it's really interesting to put yourself in the shoes of an audience member in 1950 yeah, when yeah. already it's new hollywood versus old hollywood and again, it, it feels very much, again, you mentioned kind of like a ghost story. It does feel like a monster story in particular. Yeah. And the way in which like, it's it's basically her rundown mansion is like an old kind of castle Dracula mm-hmm. that he wanders into with a creepy old butler who is generically European and therefore inherently <laughs> untrustworthy, which we'll probably talk about in a moment. But like the fact that he's like walked up to this weird funeral that has this monkey that's buried in a midnight ceremony with a candelabra, which I absolutely adore. Um, the fact that he literally walks in and the butler's like, if you need a hand with the coffin, let me know. Uh, which is just like, that's just the immediate kind of setting of mood as well. But like, even things sh- like... <laughs> I love the line as well, shush, you wake the monkey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but even things like, you know, again, that kind of late night ritual as well of them burying it, which looks like some kind of weird occult thing is happening. But even like the first... There's a very important of- monkey, Darren. It's <laughs> the great grandson of King Kong. <laughs> yeah. This little white coffin as well. Um, yeah. on like the a child, like a yeah. firstborn child. Yeah. And again, like even even things like the, the way in which they, when they first kiss. So when Gillis is kind of like when he first kisses Norma, the way in which that's framed almost like a vampire assault, like a reverse right. vampire assault where she literally grabs him by the kind of collar, pulls him in and the camera cuts away because you don't actually see them kiss one another mm-hmm. it's kind of and again even in a 50s film you probably could have got away with something resembling a lip lock but it basically fades away as if to say imagine the horrors that are happening all screen <laughs> right <old> now man. <laughs> yeah. um, i mean again, one of the things i kind of like about you know like it's it if it, it feels as though those roles that are inhabited by um usually older men with younger women are kind of reversed as well that you know the rich um, and you know that but but how that's kind of perceived as grim when it's the older woman and younger man whereas the older man and younger woman is kind of seen as standard and not grotesque so you mean for example like the way in which she basically tailors him like vertigo style to her whims where like <laughs> yeah. his car is like again again it's this wonderfully like it's a and again, it's weird to say pitch perfect abusive relationship, but it's a pitch perfect depiction of a yeah. weird abusive controlling relationship because you have things like his car getting taken away. And she's like, oh, why would you need a car? You would only use it to leave me. Um, So you can use my car, for example. The fact that like he, yeah. she moves. First of all, she steals all his stuff from his apartment and brings it over to the guest house and somehow then apparently has done like private background investigation on him and is like, Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, you're three weeks behind on your rent. So don't worry about that. I've taken care of it. Um, The fact that she begins dressing, dressing him up, like literally dressing him like a toy soldier. I'm getting rather bored. (laughs) I'm getting rather bored of that old sports jacket and baggy pants right down to must you (laughs) chew gum. At one point, yes. he asks. Um, and he and throws then, it out. Like, he, yeah. He, yeah. And so... he gets the vicuna instead of the camel. He's completely yeah. entirely. Yeah, <laughs> if, he, if he wants to get out of there, he can he can get on that camel and ride out. <laughs> um, she taught fact. me how to play Drit. So it also plays like a horror movie where the guy in the clothes shop is like, well, if the lady is paying, and it's kind of like this weird linger. <laughs> so long as the lady is paying. 
<laughs> the camera yeah. presses in on the two. The music kind of swells, and it's like, dear and the God, weird smiles like, yeah, like that man should have moved away from his ear by now. <laughs> if I if I had had time, I would have grown a little disgusting mustache <laughs> <laughs> and adopted that sly little like. Uh, uh. <laughs> uh, uh. Maybe an endangered camel. <laughs> what is Vicuna actually? What is it's it's I've never so heard it's of them. it's two there's two kinds of camelids that live in the in the Andes. They're closely related to the llama and they're they're the wild um kind of uh, ancestors of the alpaca. Um it's themselves and the guanigo. Um but there there are only six thousand in the wild back in like 1960 um uh, only 5999 after you got on the taylor show <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah yeah and the like like you you can you can buy uh, wool um from vicuna it it had it has been outlawed from time to time there are thankfully more of them in the wild now but they're still considered endangered it costs something between like uh, i think 20000 and like sixty thousand to get a um a, a vicuna uh, suit made. Um, so it, I'd like I have no reason to believe that wild alpaca is better than farmed <laughs> alpaca, but it's definitely rarer. So it must and therefore be more valuable. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, more valuable. It's for it's for people I guess with lots of money who want not to have any money anymore um so replace that money with suits like you hand this to somebody and they say what uh do you like my vicuna suit it's like is that alpaca it's like no it's vicuna Um, do i look like a poor person (laughs) yeah precisely like alpaca is really good by the way um, like, like <laughs> you, you say that like a man the... who buys alpaca suits on the regular. I don't buy al 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 alpaca suits. I read. I recently read the the, the tailor of Panama, and when I say uh, read it, uh, I, I listen to it. Um, so yeah. And one thing that, that did go through from. my head when he was walking in the rain is like, wow, that that's gonna smell now. That coat, that kind of that kind of camely yes. alpaca vicuni smell that is. So characteristic of of uh, of those kind of coats. It's like you're just ruined, and then you stuffed it in the thing. And but uh, yeah, I couldn't help but it's... think he looked really great in the uh, the twenty suit. Like that kind of that silhouette is just just looks really really smart. As well, well, the line yeah. of the suit, and again, the fact that he talks about the line is like it's mostly padding. Because again, she's literally <laughs> building a man for herself. Oh. Uh, like very, again, it's it's very much like Vertigo, but like with the gender roles reverse. Yeah, it was actually I was thinking of um can, behind the candelabra with Liberace as oh, well, and, and the demon, yes, and and all the plastic surgery and everything, and how that Sorry, feels so very. I should be clear: the character played by Matt Damon, not Matt Damon. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Matt Damon We've gone after Matt Ben Affleck, but we're going to leave Matt Damon alone. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's, it's kind I, of I did that think kind of... about that. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I, I thought about the the um, the coat getting wet because I've had coats like that that were really nice and that 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 that's, um, that got um, all kind of rained on. And smell bad. They no longer smell like what is it? Fresh, fresh linen 
and new car. Um, <laughs> like that, that, um, that new Vicuna smell. <laughs> that new Vicuna smell. It smells like it smells like yeah. alpaca now. It's, you, it's just, it's you, <laughs> Vicuna suit, you must stay two feet away from me. Um, oh. <laughs> like yeah, Selene badly Vicuna suit. We can't be together. Um, um, do you want to talk very quickly about the uh, the creepy manservant? Because there's a whole host of kind of interesting stuff around there. Um, let's, th- let, let's pretend he's not there, Darren. <laughs> yeah, just sort of. Well, the uh, the musicians must never know. Um, which is kind of... <laughs> I love Again, that. And like, what was? How much time had elapsed? And the musicians are still playing. <laughs> yeah, like, are they? <laughs> Has she tried to kill herself upstairs? And yeah. I remember thinking she had to go to his room to get the razor, come back, and like where you know where did the suicide attempt happen? If she went up to his room, did she do it in the room? And he came back and took her upstairs. And meanwhile, they're they're just going like did it. And they definitely know something's gone. This is the weirdest night of their yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Like, That's true. Don't... They play these gigs all the time. It's just like our host yeah. is trying to kill himself. Another <laughs> Hollywood Mansion gig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To take the caviar home with me. Yeah. Can I take yeah. some caviar home with me? It's just sitting there going off. <laughs> Don't you dream of taking that caviar? And I didn't tell you to stop playing, you dirty bohemian. And it's like I'm sixty years old. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it is noting that the uh, man, the manservant is actually played by Eric von Stroheim, who was a famous mm-hmm. director, obviously of the silent era, uh, most famously having directed Greed. Uh, which is one of the great Hollywood uh, editing stories. The original cut of the movie was eighteen hours long. He cut it down to nine hours. The studio then managed to cut it down to somewhere in the region of two hours and 20 minutes. Um, it turned into like a big fiasco. There were lots of arguments there. Uh, so von Stroheim basically threw all his kind of his lots in making a movie called Queen Kelly uh, with Gloria Swanson. And mm-hmm. actually Queen Kelly is the movie that they're screening when yeah. they watch it in their mansion together, which is a nice touch. But Queen Kelly was famously such a horrific production that Swanson had Stroheim fired after he racked up four hours of film and was only a third way through production, which about tracks in terms of basic maths of von Stronheim production, he's, to be fair. He's our uh, sort of director. Like, yeah, he just keeps going it, well past the point yeah, of sanity. That feels very e- economic for von Stronheim. Like, it just feels like I'm, I'm, I'm editing if, myself, okay? Yeah, yeah this is going to be only 12 hours long. <laughs> I'm going to rein myself in as I go. But again, if von Stronheim, no... if von Stronheim had a podcast, we would have serious competition. Um... <laughs> in, in terms of, in terms of ridiculous and unnecessary length. Uh, but again, it, it's it's notable that like von Stronheim basically took the negatives away with. That's him. what and she never... said. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, was, um, anyway, thanks, Andrew. Uh, Real intro. <laughs> Lord but, uh, but uh, yes, he, he took the negatives away with him. It was released in, I believe, South America and Europe, but never actually released in the States. Oh, nice. So that would have been the first time that audiences would have seen footage from the film there as well. Von Stronheim apparently, despite that, managed to reconcile with Swanson, although apparently he took this role purely for the money. He's talked about, and again, it, there's <laughs> something very like, it's weird that Von Stronheim yeah. kind of playing a Von Stromheim-esque character, mm, where there's a real sense of... Ghost. Yeah, this ghost of kind of like I'm depressed. I'm kind of I have no function or no purpose anymore. No self self uh, self esteem or self worth. Just like you know, the fact that he's the character is mar- was married to her and is complicit in her ruses to keep her male lovers' competition away from the house 
while mm. he watches her seduce and live out these um these uh relationships in front of him is so grim and i the one thing i got compelled by noticing um during the film was his eyebrows his eyebrows are almost like silent film actress eyebrows they're very 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 thin and manicured you know and and plucked to almost appear that they're not there he's very much this kind of uh you know they it, it just sort of accentuates the emptiness in his face and i just every time he's on screen there's something quite queasy about his expression that i just love that like it's him i would say is the single most um biggest argument for it being a horror film purely by his presence and his his the horror film trope of the creepy butler that's just kind of there in the background and I playing mean, the organ that wonderful yeah he literally plays an organ phantom of the opera i think is the music that he's playing as well just to underscore in case you don't get the theme and that wonderful shot of like when gillis is walking in of just his gloved hands was it not okay no, maybe it was. I, I, I thought I recognised it as some piece by Bach or somebody, wasn't Bach. it? Yeah, right. I think so. But that wonderful shot of anyway of his white-gloved hands kind of playing on the keyboard, kind of as Gillis comes in as well. But even, the, you mentioned the kind of horror trope, the sequence where Gillis gets back from kind of uh, screenwriting, from his mm-hmm. little sort of, uh, his working on an untitled love story, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, but where he gets back and discovers um, the butler waiting in the garage. Like mm. lurking, literally lurking in the shadows, kind of emerging, kind of half formed as I feel, well. Yeah, I feel, I feel like Max should be like, "Hey, show us that revolver." Like his <laughs> his life is terrible. It's uh, it's 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 it is it is it is much worse than. Oh, by the way, the revolver isn't a revolver at all. It just underlines how like out of touch. Um, uh, um, not Gloria Swanson. I was about to say Gloria Swanson. How <laughs> out of Norma touch Desmond. Norma Desmond is? Yeah. She's like, get us a revolver, um, like a six shooter. Um, you know, it's not. That's not what that. That's not what that is. Um, <laughs> like a revolver revolves. You know, it's like a little spinning <laughs> thing on that you push bullets into. And it's the kind of thing that you might like have in the early twentieth or late nineteenth century. This thing is like a handgun that the, the um, I don't know that you'd see in like L.A. Confidential, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, well, appropriate enough for the. Time they still had it. revolvers, didn't they? Anyway, sorry, yeah. we'll we'll move on from our regular gun talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is worth noting actually that even like when he's in that kind of like creepy scene in the. In the gar in the garage, where he basically kind of has this kind of moment of revealing, not only was I one of the great directors of the silent era, I was also, and I love the music cue, her first husband. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, but he mentions like there were three young directors who showed promise in those days: yeah. D. W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille, and Max von Meyerling. And again, lots of people, including Ebert, have pointed out that like if you actually just substituted Eric von Stroheim 
for Max von Meyerling, it mm-hmm. would actually be a conclusive and convincing argument of itself, which yeah. must be really depressing. Like we talk about like Gloria Swanson, who had actually managed to go on and have a career and who didn't mm-hmm. need to do this financially and was just kind of drawn by the idea of the role being interesting. And you compare that to Eric von Stroheim, who who's quite the money, who desperately needed the money and who's talked about like doing, he described it as, oh, that butler role is how he's kind of talked about it. It's wow. a, it's arguably even more depressing than anything involved. Especially that last shot of him with, um, it, it was talking Charlene about his, his face and how his face is just so much the the single biggest argument for it being a horror genre and it being the sort of the gothicness of him even having his eyebrows really really thinly plucked to accentuate the emptiness of his of his brow and his long face. But there being that shot at the end when he's, you know, stepping in for him to be a director again and that kind of everything coming full circle with him and his star and his ex-wife and him being able to shout, you know, to to command the cameras to look up and his face as he's watching her come down. It's just so grotesque and beautiful sad. at the same time um, and sad for for I- him as well. I imagine Billy Wilder, it must have just been a dream for Billy Wilder. <laughs> it's just looking like everything you're doing is perfect. I don't know how you can look so sad. You're a great actor. You look like you, Eric. You're great. Yeah. No, you no. Like a man who's watching his dreams being crushed in front of him. Great. Yeah. Stay with that. Um, yeah. It is. It's worth noting, actually, just in terms of that. Um, apparently, Wilder, when he was working on the film, had to work on it in secret. Um, he only he began filming with only sixty-one pages of script written, actually, which is interesting, uh, because he'd been writing it under a code name. Was it Can of Beans or Hill of Beans? I think is what he called it, in order to get Paramount to kind of sign off and greenlight it. And apparently, he would make up fantastical stories about what the movie was actually about while he was Brilliant. shooting it. And again, this is the thing. I think when we talked about the apartment, one of the things that Wilder did when he managed upwards was he would only shoot like particular angles so you make sure that he didn't have any surplus materials that when they got to the ending bay the producers could never go well can you cut away to here can you add a wide shot here like no i'm sorry i don't actually have a wide shot there this is what we have so there's a lot of that here where it's like i only have three pages of script so we're shooting these three pages of script (laughs) i love i love how everyone is like you know um glimming or like um perpetrating some kind of fraud (laughs) like just swindling everyone like we're introduced to this character Joel Gillis like it's like so everything I (laughs) everything I did was some sort of a lie to somebody (laughs) and and it's just the most normal thing it's like you know how it is (laughs) You're, you're, you're just kind of um you have these people come along and you tell them whatever lie seems the most appropriate and then you go some other place and tell more lies and (laughs) um and whatever you do like never tell the truth try to trick somebody into buying something from you (laughs) um yeah and it's and then like like it's so there's there there's something I don't think like we're we're not supposed to look at him and think um and he, and like I don't know if we're even meant to feel sorry for him. I think he's meant yeah. to be like relatable. That's an interesting I think, um, point. I like I I was gonna ask you guys, did you like Joe? <laughs> because like I find him a really <laughs> tricky character. 
Right. Like he's he's so he, the fact that he's so cynical immediately towards towards her like you said the resentment that this younger Hollywood has for these titans that built the industry he's already sort of a petulant young kid just being so irreverent towards the reason he would even have a job in the first place and how he feels entitled to the world owing him something and the you know his by all accounts his writing is not that good or it maybe used to be and now he just needs to or he has that one life. story from ages ago that lovely <laughs> betty has decided he and betty's like, like we're safe joe just he write this this is yeah. like all you wanted and he's i've like, already no, done I have most of the work coat, so <laughs> and then yeah i've done all the work for you and i can't do this without you clearly but the uh the fact that like when he his final rejection of Betty at the end is so interesting. Like watching it last night, it's like he it's it's the 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 analogy of a sellout in Hollywood of being like, no, I'm actually I would I would more prefer to stay to to stay here and be by this older lady and just you know to to get to get by rather than have something honest in my life like love and um a meaningful story and a film that says something the kind of the emptiness of joe is something i find really um i know he does try to leave norma in the end but the kind of the fact that he doesn't really have anything to say is really apparent that he's he he doesn't want to be um this kind of escort uh boss rider and lover and he doesn't want to to endeavor to do something meaningful with his writing. He belongs in a dead end job back in Ohio is kind of sad. He just he has nothing authentic in him, which is a great. Yeah. I think that's what I character. got from it this time. I think yeah. watching it yesterday, I kept thinking, well, first of all, like it's so striking that he goes to his friend Artie's house and yeah and immediately tries to kiss his girlfriend in the bathroom and he's a sound guy like we got really like Artie even he really likes Artie he describes Artie as the nicest man who ever lived Artie's right in the next room (laughs) exactly but there's something like going back to Artie just gave him what you said entitlement like he's entitled to kiss this girl in the bathroom who Artie has like jokingly kind of been like well you can't have my girl and he's like yeah shut up (laughs) we're just going to go to the bathroom and it's so Wrong. clear he doesn't deserve Betty at all, oh. and and it's just this this kind of um, I, I I it never occurred to me when I was a younger person watching this film I was always just like you know he's the victim so you know I'm just with him or whatever but like he really is a piece like <laughs> the only way and it, like, it doesn't matter like you don't want him to like be stuck in the mansion with her anyway <laughs> like. But he is a piece what? of he's made all his he's made all his choices. Even how how reprehensible he is to Norma. Like I, I I find it kind of the balance in the relationship has been that he gets paid to be that's their that's their kind of circumstance together, that he's gonna sleep with her and be her companion and be her her writer for hire. And he gets all this money and comfort and um and vicuta coats but then when she shows all this vulnerability and jealousy and starts calling betty that he's so embittered towards her that he's so dismissive of like how entitled he is in the first place to to 
to to go along with this ruse and to also you know be feel like he can he can pursue other people's girlfriends and then be quite dismissive towards those people as well as if they're wrong for it's like he doesn't even deserve norma like let alone betty but like he's actually not good enough norma he doesn't he doesn't doesn't deserve he doesn't deserve that desk job uh, in, in Ohio, Ohio. <laughs> like, um, with the smirking people that know it's like... imagine yeah. if he did go back to that desk job in Ohio and he's just like I should be in Hollywood and like everyone around him oh, is like this guy's such a dose not shut up in Hollywood yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is such a piece I don't think I ever right, really Joe. cared about how much of a piece he was before <laughs> yeah. but it really struck me yesterday watching it just thinking like god you really are an arsehole you and like we don't breath. even know that you're talented we're just assuming you are yeah. And the best case scenario is that we see you through Betty's eyes. So she sees a glimpse of something in you. But he doesn't even really want to do that. He just wants to be know, with and, Betty. And how he, like, that's the thing of like, it, it struck me how Betty was this really cool character who, who you know, right away from the bat is someone like, I just think a film should say something. And her already being in a society, in a, in a industry where that, that isn't even taken into account. It's just what movie's going to sell and what, you know, if I can get a book to, to get by. But then he, she reaches out to him, you know, like again and again and again to, to have an opportunity to do something meaningful. And he just kind of, but not only does he not take that seriously, but when they do actually work together, it's more that she's in a romantic interest and she's, someone that has to stay away from him because he's too attracted to her. It just is like, oh, like just, she's not someone bag. that's like, as, a, as a professional equal at all. But yeah, like, I'll, I'll do it, but only in a way that compromises you. Yeah, you know? that demeans you entirely because <laughs> yeah. I have to consider you a romantic interest. It's really, it's yeah. manky, but like, I think there's something very interesting about, um, like, if this is a film about the perils of drinking the Hollywood Kool-Aid, then positioning <laughs> the hero as as like someone that we have to like follow this story through with we're drinking that hollywood kool-aid by just yeah. like assuming this guy isn't a jerk or caring about this guy but i think willie wilder's he's playing a heel he says he's a heel <laughs> yeah he does but like it's interesting it's like here's your way into this story this guy's an asshole and that's interesting like that's not something that you see all that often and i i definitely think billy wilder is making a statement about audiences complicity in what we're doing and how how Hollywood treats people and you can go ooh and ah like isn't Hollywood a cesspit but like we're the audiences you know I think there's something yeah. being said in, in that well again it, it's worth noting in that context we talked about it as a monster movie like it's a monster movie that is inordinately well lit like that's the big difference between it and a conventional kind of horror movie is that it's so well lit and so sun drenched because obviously it's set in California but you get that wonderful moment at the end that and again we won't talk too much about the ending because we'll talk about the ending in a second but the moment where she's walking down the stairs but like that's the moment which implicates the audience as monsters because she talks about all those eyes out there in the dark where it's very clear that like in a conventional monster movie the monster is lurking in the dark we kind of talked about how like there's moments where the butler is very more max is just kind of lurking in the dark waiting but like you know um norma herself is typically seen kind of sun drenched and in the light um and in contrast the audience watching the movie and again very meta very self-aware as charlene said kind of implicating us where we are the monsters lurking in the dark kind of watching this and eagerly just consuming it and getting on the, the camera 
<laughs> and right. it's it's not quite kind of like white heat. Well, he got to the top of the world and then turns to the camera and says, "But he couldn't stay there." Or Psycho, where they have the character yeah. come up and explain the message. There's definitely a glance, though. Yes, it's very very much. But again, it, it's very much a sense that we as an audience are implicated. We are the monsters. We're the people lurking in the dark, and we're kind of consuming these stories. Worth noting we're, on the subject. Of we're like the, her as well, because like the way the way she she she's so deluded about about him as if he's the movie star you know i simply love joe uh i'm ma- mad about the boy but he's a complete piece of <laughs> you know <laughs> like it's the same way like if you like movies you will sometimes find yourself obsessed with some kind of uh, actor who like may or may not have murdered someone, um, <laughs> or who knows what they did to that uh, to that uh, kick-ass chimp son, um, you know? Um, it's it, but but you you get so you get so deluded as a um, as a fan that you almost don't want to know the truth mm-hmm. about about somebody. Like the more I know about about Peter Sellers, the more I wish I didn't know. And it's just really sad, just really sad stories, you know, um, and and that you instead instead of kind of um, instead of knowing the scandal, you want to kind of like believe um, me, yeah, yeah, maintain yeah. the mystery. So, exactly. So that, like mm-hmm. like there is a sense in which um, it's it's not just um, the audience seeing themselves watching us. They're also seeing themselves in it, um, as 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 well, I guess. Um, and again, just on on that level of self awareness in terms of the Cassie William Holding, it's notable that like he was, and again, it's been joked that uh, Wilder tended to end up with great casts almost despite himself. Um, like he tended to end up with really great casts, but on like the third or fourth attempt. So um, he originally wanted Montgomery Clift to play the role of Joe Gillis, uh, but Clift dropped out two weeks before shooting was due to start. Um, Clift's agent said that the reason he dropped out was because he felt like his client would be, quote, unable to give a convincing performance as a gigolo dating a woman twice his age. <laughs> However, oh no, it, get, it gets more interesting. Apparently Clift was having an affair with Libby Holman, who was a singer who was 30 years his senior. Um, and apparently she had thrown her pitch to fit because she was worried about the gossip that would get around about them. Exactly. If yeah, he was the, cast the scandal would have come out. Yeah, as a result of it. And again, apparently he went to <clears throat> Fred McMurray was his second choice, which is kind of interesting to imagine. Fred McMurray from Double Indemnity in the apartment. Yeah. And apparently he turned it down as well because he he kind of agrees with us. He, he could see absolutely nothing of any interest in Joe Gillis whatsoever. Not at all a character <laughs> that he found. He thought he could find anything remotely redemptive in. Um, I mean, Walter well. Neff was grand, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, by uh... comparison, like <laughs> when you have the guy who played Walter Neff going, I feel like this guy's an irredeemable. <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna controversially say maybe I'll wait till we get to recommendations, but I'm gonna controversially state that some part of me identifies with Joe. Um, yeah, I'm not going to uh, uh, recommend being being a being like an escort to older ladies in in the recommendation. Okay, because I was about to ask, was your recommendation going to be just take a drive around Southern California, get a puncture in your wheels, and whatever no. whatever driveway you end up in, just go with it. Will I will I tell you what it is? 
Um, basically, uh, not only do I co-host a podcast, I also do another really nerdy white thing, which is play D and D. Um, and my character is a rogue, so I find myself like completely and unnecessarily like any room I walk into, any situation I get into. I I like my immediate impulse is to lie and cheat and the because that's who the character is is a rogue <laughs> that I just happen to choose. But um the the the, the it's is it, like that's the kind of trap that he's found himself in, I suppose. Like sorry, it's completely his fault by the way. He's 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 a complete he's he he is an utter like reprehensible human being but what uh i guess what happens when you kind of um uh you never become a victim of your failings because other people are the are the victim of your failings but um you do start to kind of feel controlled by them and like directed by them as if yeah. uh, um, you have as if any good choice yeah no good part of you can is <laughs> is in the room like when 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 those sorts of um uh choices are arising because like you're three hundred uh dollars in debt you haven't paid three months rent um your car is um is 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 in hock the finance guys are out of uh are after you and you feel like the only kind of um uh the only thing you can do is 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 lie and cheat and steal because the alternative is like um, too humble. Uh, yeah, it's accepting your vulnerabilities yeah. and yeah, having some humility and you know um, doing the right thing and all that kind of difficult stuff that that's made more difficult when 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 one is kind of um, uh, in like a bad situation in their life, I guess. Um, like he doesn't want to sleep on his friend's couch. He wants to. He wants to sleep in this mansion. Um, you know, because um, it does have a swimming pool and a ghost of a tennis court. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the swimming pool does look better as after all that rain. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, fun fact, actually, do you know how they shot that sequence at the end where his body's floating in the pool? Because um, what what uh, Wilder wanted was he wanted a shot of the. So the police officers looking very looking normal, basically outside the pool, mm-hmm. looking at the body while it's in focus. It's apparently a very difficult shot to do because when you film like going through water, uh, going to the surface, it tends to distort. So what they actually did was they installed a mirror on the mm. bottom of the pool and then shot from outside the pool in order to get the light oh. to line up perfectly, which is quite an impressive kind of shot. Yeah. That is really cool. Um, very quickly, in terms of, say, the film's meta and self-awareness aspects, because it's generally regarded as one of the... Well, first of all, it was a part of a wave of films that came out in the early 50s around Hollywood um, and mm-hmm. looking at Hollywood. Notably, um, it competed uh, with All About Eve at the Oscars as well. And in fact, actually, it's been yeah. speculated that one of the reasons why Swanson didn't take home the Best Actress Oscar, despite giving one of the most iconic performances in film history, is because she actually split the uh, older, respectful vote with Betty Davis. Now, mm-hmm. Swanson's daughter disagrees with this. Swanson says that Hollywood had basically held a grudge because Swanson walked away from them. And they felt let down and disappointed and they weren't going to welcome her back for taking a role mocking them. But also around the same time, you had releases like In a Lonely Place, The Bad and the Beautiful, 
Barefoot Contessa, and even the remake of Star is Born as well. And this kind of meta self-awareness where Hollywood's kind of looking at itself. So like even in this film, you have Cecil B. DeMille playing himself. You've had a hopper playing herself as the gossip columnist towards the end of the film. Yeah. You have like the bridge players, which include Buster Keaton and H.B. Warner, who played Jesus Christ for Cecil B. DeMille as well, kind of reduced to playing bridge. You have even on the piano at the party, you have, I think, Ray Evans and Jay Livingston as well. You have all these kind of references to like real Hollywood. In fact, actually, I think when they go to visit uh, DeMille, when she visits the Paramount lot, obviously that is the Paramount lot itself. And they go to, I think, Studio 18, which is actually still Studio mm-hmm. 18 is still standing. But they're actually filming um i can't remember what the name of the film is but they're actually filming a cecil b demille film at that moment in time as well so it is all horrible oh it's samson and delilah is the film that they're making as well and it's it's all so gleefully kind of self-aware and meta and kind of reflexive and it's kind of interesting because you have that moment in the film where i think joe himself says most audience members don't even know that films are written they think that actors just make it up on the fly you kind of wonder, like, being an audience member in 1950, going to see Sunset Boulevard, and, you know, all of a sudden, maybe seeing Buster Keaton, who you remember seeing as a kid, um, playing himself. How weird would that have been? And how strange must have been? And now it's just something that kind of Hollywood does on the regular. Like, you look at this and you have basically set up for the player. You know, the Robert Altman film basically just mm-hmm. does this, but, like, to the nth degree. I kind of find that fascinating. It's kind of interesting, because this is the thing where... When I saw the film for the first time as a teenager, I obviously didn't recognize Buster Keaton or Cecil B. DeMille. You know, I didn't know anything about film history. I didn't recognize that Eric von Stronheim was playing Eric von Stronheim effectively. Um, Sorry, now who, going back, who is Buster Keaton? In, is oh, is he's Buster the one Keaton the, in this? Yes, he's one of the British players. He's one of oh, the Oh, yes! Wax I thought I recognized him. <laughs> yeah. Because so yeah, yeah, he had that kind of really kind of like sad Buster Keaton look to his face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my um, god! Yeah. I was looking at him and it's like, where have I seen him before? <laughs> yeah. um, apparently, he was very happy that he got two close-ups during the scene. That's apparently his big takeaway, which is kind of sad of itself. Um, he went on two years later. I think he starred in a Twilight Zone episode, which I would hardly recommend seeking out as well, in which he plays a janitor who's sent back in time and gets to do all sorts of slapstick, which again plays as another commentary on Buster Keaton kind of getting to being forgotten, brushed aside and getting to go back and relive his glory days. Being being a bit of a scrub. (laughs) But yeah. um, Also known as a buster. Oh. Um, Sorry. but yeah, I, I just kind of, I find that interesting, that level of self-awareness in terms of like, as imagining, you guys were talking about there, like imagining going to cinema in 1950 and seeing old Hollywood and new Hollywood kind of mm-hmm. colliding in a way that doesn't even make sense today. But kind of going there and seeing the kind of like meta winking Martin Scorsese playing himself on The Sopranos kind of level mm-hmm. of awareness that you, I you know, that I don't think was typical of Hollywood films at the time. Doesn't appear to have been quite as overtly kind of there. You would have had like winking references and nods, but nothing as kind of firmly, no, 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 this is Cecil B. DeMille playing himself, um, which is very kind of strange. It's, it's, it's really odd. Oh, I thought of like, what would the modern updating be for for two different kinds of of Hollywood or two different kinds of um of of avenues for fame you know like if it, if it was Gwyneth well, Paltrow one, one, I think once upon a time in Hollywood yeah is a good kind of an example because what they're trying to get across in once upon a time in Hollywood is this moment in what, like 1967 or 69 or something like that, Mm -hmm. where there's these older actors from the 50s 
um, that are being replaced by these kind of, you know, young sort of like raging bulls. And then in the actual movie made in 2019, you've got these kind of old actors from the 90s. And then these, <laughs> these, these, these young kind of, um, you know, um, precocious, uh, uh, kind of yeah, actors. people from, yeah, yeah, like, um, uh, yeah, Judd Apatow is definitely going to produce their next movie, um, <laughs> that sort of thing. Like, and, um, yeah, we're, 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 that's kind of like an update where there's mm-hmm. a la- 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 layers kind of uh, within, within layers. It's, it, um, obviously, obviously yeah, there's other stuff to say as well, um, that movie, but yeah, that, 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 would, that would be one I would think of. In, um, it's interesting as well because they sent me down a rabbit hole of famous Hollywood scandals and murders. But one of the one of the the houses that I'm kind of obsessed with in LA is a place called Greystone Mansion. Um, and Greystone Mansion, if you ever look it up, it's and Google what films actually shot there probably every single film you can think of right now in your head the big lebowski there would be blood ghostbusters air force one it just they use you begin to see that oh that hallway and there will be blood is the same hallway as um you know as philip seymour hoffman walked down in the big lebowski and even the fact that it has a bowling alley down beneath what they used in there will be blood in the same house that they was made famous by the Big Lebowski is so interesting. But just when they referenced these old crazy 20s mansions that were built with so much money and there was a bowling alley downstairs, it brought to mind this place for me because it was this kind of oil, uh, this oil air that built this kind of Tudor style house in the Hollywood Hills. And he died very mysteriously when it was sort of ruled as a suicide, but there was speculation as to whether or not um, he was having an affair with his manservant. And it has all of these kind of rumor mill ideas and scandals that were sort of built around it. And because the house is so infamous with Hollywood, you know, like every single film from so many films from the 50s, like Eraserhead was actually filmed in the stables of this house. It just has all of this sort of it just brought back to mind this 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 house which is so infamous and when you walk around it it just has this kind of it does have that kind of ghostly quality of like i mean it's it's impeccably you know reserved and and maintained but it has this feeling of all of these ghosts of legends past and you know all these crazy parties that would have happened in the 20s and 30s and um, even just the, the the murder itself and the fact that him and his manservant were found killed and his wife was upstairs and it was ruled a suicide. It's just got this kind of eeriness about it that oh, when Sunset Boulevard always reminds me of. Darren, I I I had asked you if if Joe if Joe Gillis was like a um a, if if you consider him a role model at all, like uh, the uh, if like would you be happy for example if I lived in your house um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and drove uh, like you you don't you don't drive so I I, I I could drive you around in 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 a car 
Um, it, it, I, I love so, how it's not like Joe, Joe. It's not Joe that's the icon here. It's apparently Max. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> somehow I don't know if that's more or less creepy. Um, would well, you rather be yeah, Max I mean, or Joe? Um, so okay, you're Joe. I'm Max. We need a we, a Norma we, apparently. Yeah, um, we need a Norma. Um, but they, it's not such a bad life they have, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I feel yeah. like that's a very odd takeaway from a conversation about like Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Was it she'd really like, that bad? Um, yeah, <laughs> me and Renock like, are just the bridge players. Yeah, <laughs> Joe, Joe, put on your evening wear. We'll order some Dominoes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, well, well you have well, actually well, taken me suit shopping, which is kind of unnerving now. Thank you yeah. for that, Andrew. Well, uh, but did he pay? Um, <laughs> did he get me alpaca? Um, we did a uh, we did a Zoom call with Buster Keaton. Um, um, <laughs> he wasn't very conversive. Um, no. Yes, um, just actually while Rena was talking there about the, like the geography of Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, and kind of like the idea of kind of these places that are kind of you know haunted or kind of like you know sort of scarred and kind of the lurking kind of the sense of unease and the holly weird kind of easing through it you know this is perhaps less that exact kind of story but perhaps like a cheerful alternative to it um, yeah. it was famously shot in at, at 1641 South Irving Boulevard was where the actual mansion was located and I kind of love this it was bought by J. Paul Getty but it was as part of his divorce given to his wife, Mrs. J. Paul Getty. And apparently she let them use the location for filming on the condition that she got to keep the swimming pool afterwards. They had to install the swimming pool. <laughs> and if she liked it, they would leave it there for her. And if she didn't like it, they would build one to her specifications. Um, and apparently, yes, she was very happy with it the first time around. So somebody got a happy ending out of... Uh, Did they leave the mirror in the nice. bottom of the swimming pool? <laughs> <laughs> that feels like yeah. a very Norma Desmond kind of move, to be honest. And again, I it's like I, do I want you of... to pack up this this swimming pool and get it the hell out of here. <laughs> of <laughs> like <laughs> putting <laughs> putting all the water down. in like suitcases and bags and like <laughs> taking it. Like calling the weird, creepy manservant and have him deliver <laughs> to your apartment. I want the pool delivered to my apartment, please. <laughs> um, and again, yeah. all the all the, all those photos were as well. Again, tied into that kind of vampire thing where like you know the vampire movie you know the vampire is afraid of reflections here she basically lives in them her constantly checking her reflection in mirrors and kind of the the weird kind of like audience of herself she seems to have all these faces of her staring out of pictures watching her watching herself that kind of reflexive thing that we talked about there as well but is there anything else we want to talk about anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to sunset boulevard anything we want to kind of bring up or broach the movie is very clever when he narrates it and he says uh, queer things were yet to come, which is like, oh wow, because this movie so far is incredible. <laughs> um, this is bonkers. It's going to get even crazier. All right, How, I'm, I'm going we've to. We've already hit monkey in. funeral. Yeah, we've already hit <laughs> yeah, monkey funeral. Hit, like uh, mon- 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 monkey funeral. <laughs> like there are no further monkey funerals. It's like a <laughs> there's there's a vacuna at one point. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's very good. Kind of, um, it's a very good sort of like a hook. 
to um to 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 get you kind of like don't you even think of um leaving uh, the cinema uh, changing the channel or stopping or going asleep at 1am at night don't go to sleep for a further six hours and wake up later to watch this because you're (laughs) going to miss out on some crazy stuff I do um, kind of like you can again that self awareness probably shines through where there's this sense that we talked about how Gillis is a crap person. There's also a recurring sense he's that he's so a crap. bit of a, he's a bit of a crap writer as well. Where his again and again this is one of the things where originally the movie was going to open with a sequence at the morgue. It was going to be focused on him, like it was going to be his body, and Gillis was going to be narrating. I have kind of back and forth banter with other bodies in the morgue, and they'd be like, "Hey, did you get the score from the game?" He's like, "No, I got shot before the newspapers came out." Apparently, that was cut after test screenings uh, because Wilder discovered. Oh, so it was shot and everything. Yeah, it was actually shot. Yeah, um, it's on the DVD, and I'll see if I can find footage for the show notes as well. You can actually watch the original opening sequence. He gave the editors the possibility of using that. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, no, they had to actually go back because he. Because he did the Wilder thing, he didn't shoot an alternative. He had to actually go back. Uh, that opening sequence was the last thing, last scene shot in the film. He had to actually. It was. It got such a negative they, reaction from audiences that he actually had to go back and reshoot the opening. They um, used to do that a lot. They, they, aren't there like three? I don't know if this is true, but there's like three versions of Casablanca, the ending, or three or four, <laughs> something like that. Um, well, I mean, even the, today, uh, like, I mean, it's not as if you know we're we're living in a world where people are demanding the release of alternate cuts of popular blockbusters. To pick a completely <laughs> random and arbitrary example, um, second HBO Max. Are plug. they demanding it, or are they forced upon us? <laughs> um, yeah, yes, I, that's a fair point. Um, I think I think I think artists are very dangerous and shouldn't be less um, like yeah exactly I think audiences know what's good and what's not and um uh and we should listen to them and then like like it should be a thing where do you have you um I'm waiting for the, the Gillis cut yeah, the the market the market just responds to whatever people already like, you know, and and you say, well, people 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 like baseball, right? It's the he's so so yeah, um, jaded and yeah. cynical. He he's people like, like gangsters, people like baseball. If I can put the two together somehow, yeah, he's like there's nothing there. Whatever there was is just being like dissipated completely. He's just been, and I feel like he's 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 let it happen, like and and she I don't know how she sees anything kind of within him because it would have to be so like you know she'd need a microscope to see um, like his <laughs> a, his a integrity <laughs> or a decency or honesty or something kind of like important or um, like vital in in him and yet and and yet she does see it and i think maybe we as the audience are invited to um, um, imagine that there is more to him well because than, it's the protagonist than, than we, we assume that logically. exactly yeah and because she's so codependent that she sort of this guy stumbles into her life and it it just snowballs into a, a relationship of codependency um you won't let me love you is. i think is one of those one of those like really terrifying yeah. lines um, it is worth is worth noting actually just uh, on that and uh, one of the things I really like and again I think it's very reflexive is you, despite the fact Gillis is a terrible human being the film also repeatedly suggests that Gillis is a terrible writer because you have his narration is very intentionally kind of hokey and hammy alright a couple of yes men 
to me, they said no. That sort of stuff. There's a lot of banter like that. A lot of like really hacky sort of writing and one-liner going on there, which I think is kind of very cute as well, mm-hmm. very intentional. Worth noting, this was the last film that uh, Wilder wrote with his long-term partner, Charles Brackett. Um, yeah. They, um, they had a long-term relationship. They were regarded, as, I think Wilder in an interview a couple of years earlier in the New York Times described them as the happiest couple in Hollywood. Um, the subject of their split has been a point of some contention, some debate. Uh, various accounts have been given. It's been suggested that one of the points of division was that Brackett didn't like the sequence of Norma getting ready late in the film where she's trying to mm. lose weight, where Brackett thought that that was too cruel and too unfair and too vindictive, whereas Wilder felt it was entirely necessary for the story that they were telling. Mm-hmm. Wilder himself has said there was just an argument and it became very clear that they were irreconcilable and yeah, weren't going to yeah. work together what's interesting though is that it plays through into the film itself so the story that they tell in the New York Times version of how they first met and how they became writing partners is that they were working on a script together and Brackett couldn't crack it and it was supposed to be about a couple who were having a meet cute at a department store and so, and again, this is something you kind of that shines through in the film itself. You'll probably recognize the scene in which it plays out. But so Wilder shows up and his solution is simple. It's like, oh, he just wants to buy a pajama top because he just sleeps in a pajama top and she needs to buy a replacement for her pajama bottoms, which have a hole in it. So together they figure out they can buy a set of pajamas together and that's how they meet. Um, oh, and, yeah. and that very much plays through. And you can see that in the sequence where, and again, you wonder then, is there a sense of Gillis being almost kind of an author insert where Norma's like, I can't mm-hmm. figure out how this is supposed to work. And he's like, oh, it's simple. They work in shifts. They sleep in the same bed, but in different shifts. That's the way it works. It's like mm-hmm. this kind of like really mechanical solution to a writing problem, which feels very much like a kind of a bracket and kind of wilder solution. And feels very pointed in that sense. Yeah, are we going to talk about how horny the movie is? Like, are we just going to skip over that? Like, I, I, I think, Rena, I think you might, you might have mentioned it um, uh, um, earlier, but <laughs> there's so much stuff. Like, like this is a movie made in 1950, and we're asked to imagine, the, like, um, there's all sorts of filth. <laughs> in this movie it's it's um it's 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 even worse than that normal people um <laughs> uh there's a maharaja who who come who goes all the way from india um buys a silk stocking takes it back home with him chokes himself with it and like uh wanks himself to death um <laughs> thanks andrew <laughs> That happens in this movie. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm alarmed. Not... What I th- what I thought prompted this uh, earlier on. <laughs> what? What? what the, did I say something that prompted this earlier on? I thought you said sexy at some point. Did I imagine that? <laughs> this is not a sexy film. <laughs> <laughs> I did for double indemnity. <laughs> there's, there's, oh, okay, there's sorry. Not that Andrew's been sitting on this for the whole podcast, apparently. Mark, <laughs> Mark's, like, had these, <laughs> Mark's had these black patent letter walls. He's a freak. Um, <laughs> I'd say there's a lot of shit goes down that mansion that we do not want to know oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It, it's definitely, I, I agree with the characteristic of horny rather than sexy, that yes. it, is, <laughs> it is filled with a yeah. lot of. Filthy, filthy, filthy insinuations. Like, yeah. 
to be fair, when we talked about was it Fifty Shades of Grey, our immediate latch point was also let's talk about the chauffeur because there's something very interesting going on there. So Max with his gloves and his tail, there is definitely something interesting going on there. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, but the the the, the kind of like with with I think with Fifty Shades of Grey, I I think people felt like the there was something interesting going on with the chauffeur that they wanted to know more about and maybe be a part of. But with 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 um with this is very much the opposite kind of interesting, like um, you know There's something interesting uh, going on, but I never want to know. Why yeah, I never want yeah. To see it. Please, 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 <laughs> curiosity, stop! Um, I don't want to go where you're leading. Well, you <laughs> opened this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I did. This I is Andrew's big contribution. <laughs> When I asked, was there anything else you want to talk about? You jumped right on in there with this. Darren <laughs> asked me to bring this up. Darren uh, <laughs> messaged me before the podcast. He said, I really want to talk about this. And all the way through it, <laughs> yeah. when are you going to mention this? When are you going to mention this? The yeah. dirty, dirty aspects of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> so I, no, I, no, 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 no one's jumping, no? Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it is a Sunday morning. <laughs> I, I, I actually wanted to talk about Edith Head's costumes because I, you know, like it, it's something that, like, of, of kind of films we've talked about before, we do talk, tend to talk about costume design. And in this case, the fact that it's so glamorous in its, in, in each, um, each ensemble that, that Norma Desmond has is so high glamorous and silks and turbans and leopard print and oh it's just so glamorous but yeah it's that, that glamour oh. that kind of feels like you know the the glamour that comes with a queasiness that I don't think I'd seen in in a in a Hollywood film before or done as well since it's that kind of that Hollywood old school glamour that you associate with all about Eve and big film stars, but it's just sort of tinged with a queasiness. I think it's just such a great costume design and production design that just, it just marries those two together. Everything that Norma wears or sits on had a face, <laughs> but now only her face is seen sort of thing. Yeah. The, and I, it, like it kind of, does it get across the point, or maybe it does to me the way, the way to talk about it. it may, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but how all of that glamour is is gross. Like not mm-hmm. not not just the glamour that we get to see in in the movie, which is which 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 has a very kind of like a specific point that it, you you're not meant to be kind of you're not meant to look at it and think oh th- this uh, this looks fabulous. You meant to look at it and be kind of mm-hmm. disgusted by it, yeah. but the, the broader point is like, no matter how tastefully done it is, um, it's disgusting. <laughs> um, like the Financial Times have a supplement called How to Spend It, um, uh, and 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 there's really there's really um, like beautiful things in there, and and lots of like uh, cool stuff, you know. That you could buy if you had a whole lot of money, but it's gross. It's disgusting. You yeah. know what I mean? Like even like the the Sunday Independent Living magazine. Yeah. Actually, maybe. Maybe. so the thing thing things like that, and you kind of hate read them. You know, 
these these sorts of um I won't say glamour magazines because I think there are other things. Um, <laughs> um uh but yeah, the the there there is something really um like kind of makes your skin crawl about this capitalistic these. insinuation of yeah it just it coming out of that even the fact that it's people would have watched hollywood movies the same way we would watch uh you know reality tv shows about the rich and famous it's aspirational Cribs. living yeah because uh, you you want to attach yourself to some form of glamour and way of life because you think it's the only way you should be living because money and in the film and and in this film money is the thing that controls absolutely everybody's life it's not f- the free will to go back to ohio and live it's the fact that money is com- is controlling absolutely every character um well, there, the craziness is... of being able to comment on that satirically and go this is this is the dream and it's tinged with sadness and bitterness and and decay well we it's funny because like back then people still believed that money couldn't make you happy but they hadn't made as much money as mm-hmm. we have now scientists have discovered that like once you have a yacht a swimming pool like a walk-in wardrobe a fridge entirely filled with a like pet um, monkey. <laughs> a pet monkey all of these things there, there there is a kind of an alchemy a formula where you eventually become happy um and and these people were so <laughs> close so close in the 50s they nearly discovered the secret to happiness but they weren't quite there they didn't have the technology like the the, the, the that, that cinema wasn't wasn't really large enough um but but like we we finally solved the problems of the world um you know we've we've out of curiosity, yeah. actually, because, it, you know, and again, to bookend the podcast, Charlene and Renuk suggested that earlier, if you ask the question, is this a horror movie? The answer is almost always yes, because you can make that argument. And sorry to bring us back to this, but I was just thinking, if Andrew can ask the question, is this a sexy movie? Does that mean the answer is also always <laughs> yes? And yeah. Yeah. Re- <laughs> I, it depends on your. I didn't say. I, I said this is a horny movie. Okay. I think it's. You're like I think it is, yeah, yeah, I think it's the, the idea of sexiness and its very subjectivity. Like I, I find double indemnity incredibly sexy, but it's really dark and a different variety to Sunset Boulevard. It, it's. Um, I mean, I think there is a. Fa- I think Sunset Boulevard is ultimately a fantasy. It's very theatrical and almost drag in in the creation of Norma Desmond's sort of persona there is absolutely a fantasy that is being um, projected into this story and even its weirdness there's definitely a tinge of of it being quite sexy maybe not to me personally but it's definitely a very horny film because it's sort of the thing that hangs really oddly in the in the in the air the fact that we don't yeah. see the kisses and, and the fact that max is always there presumably yeah. for watching everything. yes watching like, like i mean that's <laughs> the, the really most no depressing and door. yeah there are no locks in the doors Oof. in fact there's little yeah, holes exactly. you there's can little sort of like them, eye-shaped yeah. eye-shaped holes in the doors now as well it's like um, it's like one of those big houses in utah <laughs> like where 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 everybody like um um is being told not to go to during during the 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 lockdown um 
You know the ones, Darren. Um, <laughs> wow. <okay>. <laughs> I have never been to Utah. I just want to make this clear. Um, <laughs> Are we talking about houses with glory holes? Is this where we're going? I have no idea. I don't actually. I feel like this I is mean, one of those Max tea. things where I'm curious, but I don't want to be curious. <laughs> I mean, one of those one of those Mormon orgy mansions. You know, um, or um, oh, okay. yeah, it's yeah. the most normal thing. In the, it's like, oh, yes, that was, yes. <laughs> yes, Mormon you know orgy mansions, or mom, if you will. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think that about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about, anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to Sunset Boulevard, anything that anybody else wants to broach. Um, one, one thing that I'd like to bring up um, is, because uh, I think it's quite important is that kind of sequence where we get to see Norma being respected and admired by people in the studio? Yes. Because I think it's really important that this film isn't laughing at Norma Desmond. And I don't think it is. And uh, feel free to disagree if you want, but I think that sequence, uh, it lifts me up halfway through the film when Mm. you get to see people, like uh, how Cecil B. DeMille speaks about her. (laughs) And it's sad and it's tragic, but it's not like, he's not sneering at her. And and he, he, makes this gesture probably because he's put on the spot but also because he's like she deserves something like he she deserves yeah a modicum well, of the respect studio. yeah, yeah. And, and i really like that i think it, i really love that the film gave her that moment so that yeah. we as viewers don't just see her as a monster i think that's really important and even at the end the high drama of the ending in the final shot we're not laughing at her it's take that the grotesquerie is there but i think it's really important that we are we see her value or like that she had had value and that people recognize that particularly like people actually working again it's there's a real sense of the studio itself and the higher levels not really respecting it so for example wanting her for her car like very literally like can we can we sponge another car off her in contrast to it's the lighting guy who recognizes her and shines yeah. the security but guard real at the warmth gate. to them yeah. like yeah. the guy at the gate is like oh norma like and and it's like that warmth is i i think that's really important i wouldn't necessarily have thought to put it there but i think yeah. it's a really yeah. nice thing for it's a yeah. nice thing for billy wilder to have done and charles Brackett. Yeah. also I the thought... lynchian easter egg of gordon cole as well yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, like Cecil B. B. DeMille's kind of the weird kind of tone or the balance he kind of 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 being like he's playing himself and he's being sort of like at once um, like a bit terrible but like also like maybe one of the most decent people in the movie. Yes, less um, terrible. Less yeah, terrible. less terrible. Yeah. Like, like the assistant comes over and he's like, oh, she must be here to talk about that terrible script of hers. And he's like, yeah, I'll tell her to buzz off. And it's like, don't be mean. Now, to be fair, her script was pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it had know, good yeah. parts in it, Charlene. Of course. Yeah, he's like, your man, though, like the assistant can reasonably say, I know you're my boss and everything, but like, are you, tr- are you like testing me or something? Do you not like this person? Do you like this person? Should I let her in? Should I, I, I was just following your lead. You were the yeah, one being like, exactly. disgruntled and I just went, shall I tell her to <laughs> <get> off? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
but he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah do not be cruel. <laughs> you quite literally described her script as the worst thing you ever read. Yes, but not to her face. <laughs> that was literally your first reaction that she's here. Not like, oh, great, this, this aging star from the day has come back and we get to welcome her into the fold from set for the day. No, it's just like, oh, Cameron, she wants to talk about that script. Yeah. And again, there is that kind of weird tightrope <laughs> you have where there's a sense of like, DeMille doesn't want, doesn't necessarily want a scene and has some measure of compassion for her. But there's also like, <laughs> I'm on a shooting schedule as well. So it's like, let her bask in the adoration of like, you know, of her peers or whatever. But that's enough basking. Break it up. Break it up. Break it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, if you'll excuse me, I have to crush your dreams. But I'm going to do it gently, so it's fine. Um, but yeah. there is that Look, kind of... Give me some space to lie to her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Maybe don't. Yeah, she's had enough. So that's enough basking. Um, yeah. Maybe give her. Don't give her a moment more. But yeah, there is that kind of weird push and pull between. But I think the movie is arguably. I think it's in inarguably sympathetic to her. And again, particularly because Gillis is such a heel and such a terrible person. Um, yeah, kind of makes it. So it has it, aged well in that, like, I think it the the way it treats her is like I don't think you're looking back going like, oh Jesus, this is so disrespectful. Like it, we sympathize yeah. with her. That has aged very nicely. I feel like I wouldn't admit if I was remaking it today for some stupid reason, I wouldn't change a thing. Like, you know, like in how they treat her and and making him such a goddamn prick, like actually really helps as well. Like that, you know, people are complicated everywhere. Uh, fun fact, actually, before we move on there, apparently when Cameron Crowe shadowed Billy Wilder in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, he would remark that apparently Wilder would get like four or five calls a day, which consists of him picking up the phone saying, no, I'm afraid I don't own the rights to Sunset Boulevard and I can't let you remake it and hanging up. But apparently four or five times a day. Sorry. That's a great read if, if you haven't read it. It's great. Yeah. Conversations with Wilder. Yeah, yeah. All right. That about wraps it up then, I think. Um, all right. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our, our guests to recommend something, something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to what we've talked about in the podcast. It could be something that's completely random, just something that brings you a bit of joy that you'd like to share with the world. Before we do that, to give you a second, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Okay. So I'm going to recommend something I've recommended previously, which is I'm going to, well, I'm going to recommend a few things that I've recommended previously. Um, um, I've previously spoken about a podcast called Mission to Zix, which is a fun kind of an improvised sci-fi um, kind of serial. Um, and you're probably wondering, what has that got to do with Sunset Boulevard? Well, it's because Gillis the, is a robot. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's one thing, because there's a robot called C-53. But they, the ship that they ride in uh, is uh, called Bargie. Her full name is the Bargerian Jade. And she used to be a um, um, a film star in um, in uh, Hollywood, uh, which, which which is the, the like the hologram kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, film film industry. Um, and she's always like, you know, um, turning down these calls from people who are giving her genuine offers um um you know and and, and they, it it's i i won't do it justice by explaining it but you see a lot of norma desmond in this um uh this old um spacecraft that talks to them um because it's it's sci-fi 
Darren, you you like Star Trek, so imagine if the computer in Star Trek had a personality um, and was uh, Norma Desmond. Um, so that that's 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 what you could look forward to there. Um, other than that, um, we we talked about this movie not being misogynistic, but something that is very misogynistic, but that I'm enjoying is John Carey. Um, they, just, <laughs> it, it's um. It's nice so, segue, Andrew. Um. Yeah, it's it's so unfortunate. There, there's all of these, especially like English authors, but I, I guess male authors <laughs> generally they tend to hate women. Um, the the, but they're they're still like fairly good at writing, um, and and like the um the books that I've been enjoying at the moment that and and I was made think of them as I was watching this. Because uh, his books are full of 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 really terrible men, um, who who lie all the time, um, and uh, you know take things. And um, uh, I I I thought of I thought of the Taylor Panama. And I thought as well of um, the which I'm looking forward to Tom Hiddleston. And the night uh, manager. manager. The night manager. I've been re- I've been listening to the night manager, so I haven't seen the show yet. But I'm 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 really really enjoying the book. Um, yeah. So if you can, if like if it, if somebody wants to create like a fan edit of John McCarthy, <laughs> <laughs> like where 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 he hates women a little less, then uh, yeah. then yeah, we'll call yeah, it the reverse I've, Last Jedi edit. Have at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The thing so, I always yeah. love about like Carrie's mostly male characters is that they're they're kind of in this generally always in these kind of James Bond espionage kind of worlds, but mm. they they're so vulnerable and they're I think yeah. it's their vulnerability uh, and their really sketchy kind of flawedness that I think really works well for that genre. Like in Tinker Taylor, it's just really about how you know how disengaged and disassociated they are themselves from their own lives and their own um their own beliefs their own emotions and that's what makes it so compelling is it's not just another spy drama it's it's um these really flawed characterizations that kind of make that work so well yeah i think if we wanted to be charitable you could say that like with a lot of misogyny, it's not that the man hates the yeah, woman; it's, the it's that they hate themselves. Yeah, and that and that they they because they, 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 there's this there's this re- kind of recurring theme in John Le Carre of them having caused some harm to a woman, and and it being their 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 the thing that yeah, and they their 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 redemption wanting to save a woman mm-hmm. but also hating that woman because that woman reminds them of of, of <laughs> some woman that they couldn't save um, she is dead <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah it's so, actually a good um, segue oh sorry no 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 sorry i'm finished as a good segue into the thing that actually made me uh think of something i was reading recently that reminds me of sunset boulevard is one of my favorite books of all time is James Elroy's Black Dahlia. And that was a book that explains a lot about my point of view in the world because I read it when I was 13 years old. And 
you know, like read LA Confidential the same way. And like, that is a very, 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 very starkly violent and tough book where the characters are incredibly misogynistic and racist. And, um, it's, it's a bleak view of the world, but it was also that kind of starting point for me watching LA Confidential, watching, re- reading these books and watching David Lynch that kind of started that, that, peppered my perspective of Hollywood and the golden age of of Hollywood and it's a such a dark book about a very obviously very famous um Hollywood murder that has been unsolved and it's because because of the nature of it the violence and the obsession that these fictional characters have towards this dead woman it, it just kind of it sits in the same place for me as Sunset Boulevard um, but more more optimistically, the thing I'm getting a lot of um, joy from in the last few days is I got the, I'd never seen it before, but I got the Blu-ray collection of Women Make Film that... The Mark um, Cousins documentary, is it? Yes. And it oh, is it's on BFI, I think. Yes. With um, Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton and Carrie Fox. And a whole host of others I've yet to get to. I've only probably watched about, I think, six chapters of it so far. And I think it's just such a genius, um, a, a genius way to celebrate unheard of female authors and female filmmakers is to, is to make it a, a long lecture of filmmaking itself and to talk about openings of openings of films and characters and how we meet characters and to, look at each chapter in regard to craft and, and technique and to show scenes from films that you that more likely have never heard of, let alone seen. Um, and such a great way to do it through only female filmmakers and only female filmmakers who you probably haven't seen. So I've only just started, just had the tip of the iceberg really for the last few episodes and just have found it so inspirational to my own craft but just to kind of to observe films in such a way is, is just so interesting excellent i have to I have to check that out yeah i um watching bfi player and that's one of one of the kind of on the on the watch list i always watch those mark commode introduces after rather than before um but i i think he is actually really good at not um spoiling the movie for you um <laughs> Yeah, they're like about one and a half minutes, um, and it doesn't it, like you watch it afterwards, and you're like, I totally could have watched that before. That would have <laughs> Probably would have helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, and Charlene, anything you'd recommend? Actually, um, I have been reading the new book by Liz Nugent, and I Yay. I really 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 like her writing. She's an Irish uh, Irish writer. Yay. Um. Our Little Cruelties is her new book, um, but I really enjoyed her last book. I think it was her last book, Skin Deep. Um, but if there's such thing as like urban, modern, Irish, Gothic, it's her. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> In the way yeah. that like, it's it's like this kind of noirish book about family and how people's lives uh, diverge and then come back together, whether you like it or not. And it's, gr- it's great read. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I have actually been doing a terrible job of watching films um, during lockdown. Uh, this great thing called Zoom quizzes, and I've been doing them every <laughs> night of the week. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I did watch a, a nifty little thriller 
called I See You with Helen Hunt. Uh, It just popped up and I just thought, "Ah, this looks like something I'll stick on. Um, It's just one, do you know when you're like, this isn't a masterpiece, but this is one of those films that like, I really appreciate that it starts somewhere and ends somewhere completely differently, Mm -hmm. goes down a lot of different roads. And it was just unlike anything I'd really seen before. And I really enjoyed it. Like, I was like, this is a good Friday night movie, Mm -hmm. stick it on. Um, Full of twists and turns, little thriller. Uh, I had no idea where it was going and I was kind of annoyed by it for the first half an hour going like, mm, right, okay, it's one of these and what's going on? Do I give it? And then like <laughs> half an hour in, I was like, or like maybe about 40, 45 minutes in, it just took a little turn and then it takes another couple of little turns. Um, so that's a, Birdemic like, is a bit like that. What is? Birdemic is a bit like that. We watched yeah, that I mean, that's, that's a very... <laughs> I feel like that's a very different recommendation. It's a bit too cerebral for me, though. After about, after about 45 minutes, it takes a sharp turn. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally at the halfway point. I think we talked about this in terms of, like, sorry, the genius sorry, of structuring. Sorry. sorry. Um, um, that's me. All right. Uh, in terms of recommendations yeah. for me, I think people have already mentioned these, but just to recommend them anyway. Uh, Mulholland Drive from David Lynch, obvious point of reference for this film. Uh, very worth seeing if you haven't seen it. Um, and The Player, Robert Altman's kind of 1990 mm-hmm. um, sort of like new uh, Hollywood kind of film, which for me is kind of one of my touchstones in terms of Hollywood films about Hollywood films. I'm not sure. I actually saw that film around the same time as Mulholland yeah, Drive yeah. and Sunset Boulevard as well. Yeah. And very much kind of in the same meta self-awareness sort of thing where you have everybody playing themselves. And it was in the video store. Yeah. I'm curious about this um, new genre of Irish urban gothic <laughs> because there is a <laughs> yeah there 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 is there is there is the we need a name for it though yeah because the 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 name for the kind of Irish rural gothic is being called bog gothic and I of, love of course it. like uh, sorry I love it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the, I, apparently, like the the, the I, I believe people who who supposedly write bog gothic don't like that um, kind of gen- genre. It does sound a bit like the horror horror books that you keep on the toilet. That does sound. <laughs> <a bit> like... <laughs> yeah, but like yeah, the writers maybe... of genres never like the names of the genres. Or no, yeah, nobody likes chicklet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, and even even yeah, like n- nobody nobody who creates anything wants to be associated with that thing. Like Karl yeah. Karl Karl Marx was like, whatever you want to say about communism, just know that I'm not a communist or something kind of along <laughs> those lines. Or um or no, not communism, but Marxism, because Marxism was already being spoken about like in his lifetime. And had to take already taken on kind of a a complexion that he didn't quite like, um, and 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 wanted to kind of disassociate himself from the movement named after him. Um, <laughs> so yeah. And very quickly, one other quick recommendation. Um, it's on Amazon Prime at the moment. Cause if you'd like a bit of fifties retro stuff, and obviously because Andrew's entirely right, Sunset Boulevard is secretly a sci-fi film. The Vast of Night. Uh, oh uh, yes, yeah. I'm dying to see that. I really that might be it. tonight, actually. Ah, it's kind of it's a nice, it's a nice '50s throwback, kind of War of the Worlds type thing. It's about. Uh, Where'd you say I can find it? Amazon Prime. It's oh, okay. Do you know what else is on Amazon Prime? The uh, the Night Manager. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so maybe it's a small, maybe it's I'll small get the universe uh, as well. Yeah, exactly. It just yeah. came to me there. Another film to watch is Barton Fink. 
yes 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 i have not seen that for so many years so i i, I now that that's popped into my head i'm like that is that is a, a, the genre of hollywood that kind of yeah gothic surreal um monkey funeral style hollywood <laughs> film <laughs> um i i really don't like um what's it called hail hail caesar or yeah, uh, yeah. This one. i really like that but anyway yeah, I thought and it was the bad like, and the beautiful was another one peak, too. Peak Cohen Brothers, um, in 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 like the worst way. And I like some <laughs> Cohen Brothers movies. Um, anyway, it's sorry. Too too Cohen. It's too Cohen. <laughs> um, all right then. So that, I think that about wraps it up. If people look for a bit more Charlene, a bit a bit more Renuk online, where can they find you? So Charlene, where can we find you? Uh, at Charlene Leiden on Twitter. Uh, Renuk. Uh, at Renuk Niji or I O G H N A C H N I G. Um, on Twitter and Instagram if you really, really, really want to see what my cats look like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do your cats not have their own do. Instagram? They I, deserve I, you know, their own I Instagram. I started, but... <laughs> Cats it if yeah, what you can. Would I put in my own one, yeah. like cups of coffee. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've started making. I've started making brunch from the Ottolenghi book, and now I, I, I think I should start an Instagram. Do all I want to see on Instagram is pictures of brunch. That's it. Ex- yes. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. would call it thanks for brunch. <laughs> <laughs> Way! The, Dar- Darren's, Darren's coming in 50 50 on no, this. What? No. I'll, no, say, no. I'll take the photos and make the food. You'll make terrible puns. Um, and, yeah. I, can, I can do that. I, Is this going to be like the podcast have... where you set up the social media? <laughs> I don't have a Twitter because I run the 250 Twitter um, and I'm far too busy with that. Um, that's, I remember. Uh, that... How's the Facebook? How's the 250 Facebook? <laughs> Facebook was your responsibility, Darren. Oh. You... <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> da, yes. da, da, we, we, need to, we need to wrap this up because I still need to edit this podcast. Um, but if, uh, but if, if you can go... If you can go on uh, on iTunes and review the podcast, um, give it five stars. Good things will happen to you. Um, and, Particularly yeah. if you're a Sagittarius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you don't, yeah. Oh, yeah. For Sagittarians, it's very important that you that you give this podcast five stars. Um, Actually, should, that... should we end on on learning what our star sign are? That should be should be kind of try and, and share our star signs. I feel like that's a good idea. Listening. Yeah, okay. We have this kind of Hollywood squares thing going on where yeah. we're, <laughs> we're in a Zoom call and I feel I feel like one of us is going to be a fire sign, one a water sign, one a... Well, I know that Darren is, is a water sign. I'm a water sign. Ooh. Yeah, because he's a Are you Pisces. not also a water sign or do you... No, no, I'm, I'm a... That's not the way astrology works. I'm a fire sign. <laughs> I'm an Aries. All right. I'm an Earth sign. Earth sign you know what you a... have to do, Charlene. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am also I am also a Pisces. Oh. Two Pisces. How do we make this work? <laughs> do you know it actually works diagonally in my Zoom screen because Darren Same is di- is diagonal well. to Charlene. Way. Yeah, exactly. So, listeners, you um, can visualize that. Construct your own. Um, there, and there's two fish. 
There's two yeah. fish in the in the Pisces. In the Pisces. Uh, ah, see. Ah. All right. And I'm Virgo. Uh, I don't know what that means. That would all make sense. Uh -huh. Virgo, Virgo is the, uh, uh, the 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 virgin, right? Is 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 that what that is? There's like a the, the, a, a a woman. Am I completely? The lady with a bucket of water. Is yeah, she's, right. she's she's got some. I mean, I I don't really know these things. I just, no. <laughs> my my I think I have. Um, at home in Sligo, there's these Pauline Buick kind of um, uh, horoscope um, sort of um, prints or, or or watercolors where she did all of the the um, horoscopes. So that's now in our show notes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Alexander. Uh, sorry that you're editing this and putting together the show notes. I really appreciate it. Um, listeners can join us. I know you week. appreciate all the work I do, Darren. <laughs> Listeners can join us next week, uh, where we'll be discussing the 2003 Martin Brest classic, Geely, starring Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. Joining us for that discussion will be the wonderful Louise Bruton and the fantastic Jen Gannon. So we hope you'll join us. Brilliant. Until then, take it easy, guys. Bye. Thanks Thank so you guys. much, Thank guys. You. Really enjoyed that.